Hey, this is Craig Cannon, and you're listening to Y Combinator's podcast. Today's episode is with Dalton Caldwell, who's a partner at YC, and Juan Bennett, who's the founder of Protocol Labs, a YC company that's working on IPFS, Filecoin, and CoinList. If you're just getting into cryptocurrency, I highly recommend listening to episode 244 of Tim Ferriss's podcast, which does a pretty good job of covering all the terms and explaining how they all connect to each other. And before we get started, I want to let you know that this is a really long episode, so it's pretty much broken up into three parts. Uh, part one starts right after this, and it's Juan's explanation of IPFS and Filecoin. Part two is our conversation with Dalton, and that starts around minute 11. And part three is Juan answering questions from Twitter, and that starts around one hour and 40 minutes in. All right, here we go. Let's just start with a, a description of all the words we've been talking about. Yeah, IPFS, Protocol Labs, etc. So Protocol Labs is a research development and deployment lab for networks that uh, I started to uh, really build the IPFS project and build Filecoin and create a place where we could create the kinds of projects that you know could turn into something like IPFS or Filecoin or other or other things. Um, I really wanted to build an organization that you know someone like Satoshi could have seen as a way to to build a project through. It'd be like, oh yeah, instead of doing this on my own anonymously, I could go and like build it in Protocol Apps. Um, and it is born out of a of a you know personal frustration where when I was starting the IPFS project, I didn't have such an organization that I could go to and go and build a project there. Um, really, I think like the only option was either uh, university or, or um, Google. And in the university case, it would have been killed in, in the you know, publish or perish world where like, hey, this is way too ambitious, focus on this like one little thing and maybe publish that and move on to the next thing. And it would have not been an, an implementation project. You know, similar to how the web could have never really been built as a as a grassroots project, um, and then the flip side, I think this kind of tech is stuff that Google might be interested in in funding from the perspective of Google funds a lot of protocols and funds a lot of research, but it also kind of runs counter to basic Google positions around you know data control of data and how the internet. Fl- how information flows and all that kind of stuff. And it's like in direct opposition. So it's stuff that, <laughs> that probably shouldn't have been funded or in, in, you know, direct control by Google. And it's the kind of stuff that, that I, that could, has the potential to, to really rebalance power on the, on the internet. And so, you know, figured I would, I would start an, an organization that's separate. Um, and so protocol apps is, is really a, a group that is trying to create, um, a number of these you know projects and protocols around things that we think are are broken on the internet and kind of like we we the charge that we have for ourselves the mission that we have is to you know go and and improve and upgrade a whole bunch of the 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 software and protocol machinery that we have um running the internet both you know in low level actual internet part or like the web and like more more user user facing pieces and um we have a very open-ended kind of perspective of like, hey, we just want to improve computing in general and improve the pipeline of going from research to to a, to a product that people use. It just happens that for now and for the next few years, we're super focused on on how information moves around the internet, how how uh, to distribute it better, how to you know change and rebalance power associated with information, give people sovereignty of data. Um, give people uh and, and just make the internet more efficient make it you know route around things like you know attacker and hostile censorship um make it so that you know 
information has more permanence, a whole bunch of questions around this. And you know, the two projects there are, you know, one of them is IPFS, the Interplanetary File System. It's a, used by a ton of um, organizations and uh, you know, both, both businesses and um, projects and you know, blockchain networks and, uh, and governments and so on. And it's used in a whole bunch of cases around, you know, it, I think in a, a short way to describe IPFS is saying, hey, it's a large-scale content-addressed um, content distribution thing <laughs> and uh and you know like the the it's it's a protocol it's a peer-to-peer protocol for moving around anything any kind of content files data you know hypermedia whatever um in a peer-to-peer way um and you know with proper content addressing and you know, cryptographic verification and all this kind of stuff and a whole bunch of tooling around the guts of making all of that work which is peer-to-peer networks and, you know, the ability to work across a whole bunch of different transports. And you know, there's no end to the really <laughs> important pieces of, like, the peer-to-peer machinery that you have to build that the IPFS project was, you know, really about. Um, and that's used by a ton of people both in the blockchain space and outside. Um, and it's used in the blockchain space because it fits really well with the model of, like, you have authenticated data structures and you have to, you have hashes and you address things that way. And it's used outside because people want to distribute things in a, in a better way. People want to address things by what they are, not where they are. Like, it's really time. It's kind of like, it's time for the internet to move from location addressing to content addressing. And in a big way, we've been, I guess, appointed to do so. And we have to slog through the really hard work that is that is doing that, uh, and and we're doing it, and it's great, and like, we're succeeding. <laughs> um, but you know, there's there's more to go. There's a lot more to go. What's, what's the current status of making it all human readable? Because I knew that was an issue early on. Oh, like the making human readable names? Yeah. So yeah, so human readable names are an interesting question. Um, human readable names should map to content, and people should use them when they know and are aware that that name is now subject to a consensus protocol, right? Like in, in a way. Human readable names um, either require a consensus protocol to that is global scale and agrees makes everyone agree on what the value what the value of a name is, or they're relative. Meaning, like I think there's like a GNS, which is like the new naming system, which is relative on on like a trust graph. So you know, and, and it kind of maps more to how humans think about names. Where like you know, I might call um, a friend uh, Jeremy, and I know him as Jeremy. But, and, you know, he actually might have a last name as well, and he might have other names that he goes by on the internet. And, um, and other people call other people Jeremy, right? And so GNS is an interesting, or, or the approach of using trust graphs and, and so on, or social networks to name people is a, is a really interesting and good one. But it doesn't give you um, URIs or names that you can print on a billboard that a ton of people can look at and enter into their computer, which is the whole point of human-readable naming, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, you really are stuck with consensus. And so when you're stuck with consensus, you either have something hierarchical like DNS um, and so on, or you have something like blockchain naming, so like Namecoin or um, ENS or, or Blockstack. Um, and you, you have a, a, a situation where human real naming is important for people to type, but I think we have like this massive addiction to human readable naming where it shouldn't be used in a lot of places because it brings in a whole bunch of baggage around, hey, now you need a consensus system. Now you need like an network stack. Now you need like a whole bunch of things that normally you shouldn't need um, to just address or point to some information. And so 
you know, we still want hashes to be the main thing that people use to link to things. Mm-hmm. Um, just maybe, you know, allow human readability as an entry point to all of that. Okay. Um, do you want me to describe Falcon first or do you want to dive deeper? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so then the Falcon project is a, it, it was born out of, uh, out of IPFS as a way to incentivize the distribution of content in the IPFS network. Um, and that's where, you know, you, you think about the problem of, of storing bytes of data in the world and you have a, a situation where there's a lot of people with disks and there's a lot of people with data and it's effectively a market where people <laughs> want to buy storage and some people want to, you know, provide storage and, and provide a valuable service. And so in the, you know, old peer-to-peer tradition, people would just do resource sharing and kind of try and hope to achieve like a right balance. Um, it's been shown that that works for some use cases but doesn't work for others. And what was really miss- missing there was like an understanding that this is actually a spectrum where on one end, some people contribute massive amounts of storage and on another and, and you know don't really need to use the, the network very much. And on the other end you have people that are contributing or like, you know, asking for massive amounts of storage to store all their data and don't plan to contribute any storage. And so this is, you know, basic like, hey, introduce a currency and now you've mediated this market. Um, and so that's what Falcon is about, is creating a, a a currency that can mediate this market. Now there's a whole second aspect to it, which is you can look at a network like Bitcoin as a as an as an entity that managed to get Tons of people around the planet to amass massive like amounts of computing power to maintain the Bitcoin blockchain, all of the Bitcoin mining that's going on. And can you create a different proof of work function that maintains a blockchain um, that instead of just you know trying to like crunch through hashes and, and find a low target, that also um, causes a valuable side effect? And that valuable side effect is hey, you have to store a whole bunch of files. Um, in order to you know have power in the consensus, and so a way of framing it is that the Filecoin consensus, if you want to participate in the Filecoin consensus and maintain the Filecoin blockchain, um, what what's counted is not your CPU raw power uh, as your as your influence over the consensus, but rather the amount of storage you are providing to the rest of the network. And so for that we use um, you know proofs of storage, and specifically a new kind of proof we we we. Uh, came up with, um, we, I guess, discovered, uh, which we call a proof of replication. And so that checks and verifies that content has been correctly and independently stored, um, you know, independently in like, you know, doesn't mean like different physical hardware, but rather it means that a different array of bytes somewhere is being used to store this and you can't deduplicate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you can't cheat it in that like you can't generate, like you can't pre-generate a lot of the um, the content and cheat like there's a whole bunch. This is like a very specific problem, but but uh, the thing there is, Filecoin um, with this different work function can organize massive amounts of of, of storage to then sell in the network. Um, so you you get a lot of people to mine the currency and, and and you know you have a very strong incentive to mine the currency, and then you can sell all that storage uh, that supply that comes on. Uh, to to users um, and so like that's a you know mediate this this uh, it's a blockchain powered decentralized storage network is the way that we can think about it. Dalton, you want to just kick it off? What's your first question? So my first question is maybe start with a timeline of you as a founder, what your initial idea was, why you started the company, and just how we got here. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, and um, so it was probably two thousand. 13, uh, late 2013 or so, um, I've been working on a whole bunch of knowledge tools. So this means uh, software tools that can help you learn faster or help scientists under, like, 
figure out what's in papers and so on better. And I found this really annoying problem, which is um, data sets, like scientific data sets, were not well versioned, were not well managed, and so on. And um, you know, there's a whole bunch to that problem, but it struck me as this hugely lacking thing that you know computer scientists have Git um, and we have versioning. And we also have BitTorrent, and we know how to move around large, uh, large content volumes of data um, very efficiently in, in a peer-to-peer way. And so what really seemed to be missing was this sort of combination of Git and BitTorrent uh, that would enable these data sets to be distributed worldwide, well-versioned, and so on. And so that, that sent me on a, on a, on a path of, of, re, of re-engaging with a whole bunch of stuff that I'd been thinking about prior, like many years before, um, a lot of peer-to-peer stuff. So I, I did, uh, my background is in, in distributed systems and, and networking. Um, I studied that at, at Stanford. And so um, at the time, I had been looking into things like wireless networks and um, why peer-to-peer networks like Skype worked um, and so on. And it always struck me that, that that was a very untapped area of potential. It just seemed, I think that the, the potential there was like vastly under underutilized. And so a lot of the problems with usability, I don't know if you know my whole background, but my first company, I mean, that I started was, was a peer-to-peer. It was, um, it was distributed social networking. And so a lot of these ideas keep recycling every few years. Yeah. And one thing that we noticed is how hard it was for users to get the negative side effects of having something just having something that is peer to peer, um, yep. BitTorrent worked pretty well, um, but even Skype Skype kept it really. You didn't know that it was peer to peer, and unless you're unless your upstream bandwidth was saturating yep. and you got a nasty letter from your ISP or something, you had no knowledge as a user. And so, sort of my takeaway during that era was that usability always trumped the elegance of peer to peer models. And then when I saw YouTube take off, YouTube is exactly the sort of thing you would expect to be built on top of BitTorrent, but in fact, it was entirely centralized and they were streaming everything themselves. But holy cow, it, because it worked so well and Flash Video worked so well, the culmination of those events happened. And so my kind of knowledge going into this of even for the, you know, going back to your story in a second is usability to me is such, as a, such an important concept to have these distributed systems um, get used by end users. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> Without a question. Um, and I mean, very, I think, Famously, I think Drew Housen, um has even pointed out how there were a whole bunch of clunky sync file sharing sync things that that like really just did not work. And the big you know the big thrust of Dropbox for a while was just get usability right, get the the user experience flawless, and it almost doesn't matter what you do underneath the hood as long as you as you. Uh, make sure the UX. Yeah, because like I'm sure back in the day, everyone was like, "Well, we have RSync. That's good enough." You know, yeah. like we don't need Dropbox. We have RSync. <laughs> right, but but then there's like this other fundamental difference, which is that yes, absolutely, building these systems is hard, and you have to pay attention to the UX. But there's a whole bunch of places where economically it makes a ton of sense to do something better and to do something um, that has a different arrangement. I think there were a whole bunch of pro- like there was a period of time, basically from 2003 to 2009 or so, where peer to peer was sort of dead, and I sort of call this like the, the peer-to-peer winter, similar to the AI winter. Uh, like, you know, there's been a series of AI winters. Uh, that was kind of like the peer-to-peer winter. And there probably was were more peer-to-peer winters before because peer-to-peer is actually a pretty old concept. A lot of people have been, been struggling with the differences between making things peer-to-peer or centralized since the beginning of the internet. So I think there was, there's a whole bunch of reasons why a lot of the companies failed uh, that were, you know, getting built around that time where products failed and why there were very few success stories. So I think 
Skype and BitTorrent are probably the biggest success stories for, from that entire time. Um, and yeah, I think Skype, you know, didn't really talk about peer-to-peer very much. <laughs> yeah. And BitTorrent, um, you know, aside from Blizzard and a few others, like it was mostly used for for moving around a lot of, you know, movies. Uh, and so I think that, that said, though, it, it doesn't, like the actual CS behind it, like the actual engineering engineering re- uh, reasons for, for choosing to do something peer-to-peer uh, make a ton of sense. And it's, this actually connects very well with, with Protocol Labs as a company because the key thing is to understand deeply what, what the benefits of using some technology are, uh, what are the underlying, um, you know, from, from like a research and, the- and theory perspective, like what is the theoretical difference between, between doing one thing one way or another, like between centralized models or, or decentralized models, between doing things peer-to-peer or doing things in a hierarchical, like well-structured way. And, um, and those different properties uh, can give you a different range of opportunities. Now, peer-to-peer is a lot harder to build with because you don't have a lot of control. Um, you, when you build centralized things, um, it's a lot easier for people to get going. Um, it's a lot easier for, you know, there's lots of established ways of doing things and so on. And like rolling out changes. I mean, we could enumerate all these, but like yeah, it's, when you, when you yeah, it's, yeah, like, it's easy to roll out a website. It's hard to distribute software, I mean, and uh, so, get everyone and, to upgrade, right? And I would, argue, <laughs> I would argue that it's easy to roll out a website today because you're, you're working on top of decades of centralized oh, totally. engineering. Yeah. Whereas we haven't had the same level, deep level of engineering on the peer-to-peer side. So the majority of groups that end up going into peer-to-peer end up having to, to create a lot of stuff from scratch because it either hadn't been done or had been done in a way that wasn't reusable. And this was actually one of the big thrusts of, of the IPFS project in general. It was create a whole bunch of, uh, create a huge toolkit that people can use to build applications in peer-to-peer land um, without having to like reinvent everything from scratch. Um, it was like this really huge frustration for us. It was like, okay, great. Like it's 2013, 14 at the time. Um, and we have to go back and like rewrite tons of normal peer-to-peer stuff that was, you know, could have been written 10 years before, um, mostly because, you know, the language and tooling had changed. Um, we wanted to do a few different things. We couldn't reuse a whole bunch of the libraries that were out there, or the libraries made a whole bunch of assumptions about reality that like were were broken, right? Like, um, I mean, very famously, like I, I, a lot of people, just in, from the engineering perspective, you know, things like assuming that you are going to be working on top of like TCP and and that the port that you have is a TCP port and that it's not a UDP port or whatever, or even that you don't have some other transport, right away can make a library completely unusable for a project like years down the road. Um, I remember dealing with NAT traversal. Yeah. (laughs) NAT traversal is a wonderful problem. It it still plagues people everywhere. Let's go back. You you were working on distributed systems. This was interesting to you. How did this turn into the company? Like, what was the thing you applied to YC with? Right? What was Uh, the timeline there? I applied to YC with with the plan of doing, um, you know, this, of building both IPFS and Falcoin and a company called Protocol Apps. I mean, it it was right away from the beginning. um, It was like this large-scale plan of going to do build a whole bunch of different things um, all around um, distributed peer-to-peer systems, all about decentralization, and with a business model of taking a portion of currency. Um, and this was in 2014 when this was a very new thing. People weren't doing this. Um, there was basically Ethereum and a couple other groups that had also gotten to the same conclusion. And, I mean, it... it aside from a few side projects that we've started and so on, and, like, basically, like, delaying our timelines in terms of, like, software taking a lot longer to build than, than expected, we've pretty much followed the plan um, in that it, you know, from the beginning we had both IPFS and Falcoin. Um, and the, the 
you know, I, I guess connecting to, to what I was saying earlier, so I had this problem around data sets and, and versioning and so on, and that led down a rabbit hole of like really thinking through um, how information moves uh, in, in the network, how information moves on the internet in the first place, um, how does addressing, um, how, does it, how, how do we do addressing in general? Um, it turns out like with HTTP and so on, we do, we do all this location addressing stuff that uh, you know, works very well for a, for a certain kind of use cases, but absolutely terrible for a bunch of other set of use cases and introduce a whole bunch of brittleness to, to the infrastructure, right? And so um, this, this whole like set of, exploring the set of ideas that had been well-trodden by lo- lots of groups before, uh, before me and, and before you know, the, the current wave of peer-to-peer. Yeah, you know, do you summer. remember Mojo Nation? Of course. Totally. I, was a, I, was, I would run it in my dorm at Stanford. Awesome. Um, yes. And it had a lot of the primitives in there, right? Like I, re- I liked, I ran a node and I had storage space on my PC and like I had fast yeah. internet. It was great. So, so <laughs> I, I was not familiar with Mojo until I chatted with Zuko about it. And it turns out like Mojo pioneered all this. Yeah. Uh, completely. I, I thought it was so cool. Like I thought, like I completely drank the Kool-Aid and this was in oh, yeah. 1999. I was like, that was my favorite yeah, I mean, it was a great Fair. era. Like you had, you had, um, you know, the beginning of you know, Canemlia had just been, you know, the first major large scale DHD had been deployed. Um, you had a bunch of people uh, building peer to peer networks like um, Kaza, which then turned into into Skype and um, and a whole bunch of other things. And yeah, like it was it was very promising. It was like the moment where everyone was getting connected to the internet. You could now build like huge large scale infrastructures and so on. Um, and it just kind of. You know, again, like there was this like peer-to-peer winter. Like the the there's a whole bunch of reasons why that happened, um, and you know, people could sit around debating. But I think it had to do with the fact that the first primary use case that people were using peer-to-peer for was copyright infringement, and that being like not a viable strategy for a lot of companies. Uh, another thing was it was right at the, around the same time of the rise of the normal cloud. Um, so Google had been Google and other companies were investing very deeply into building like large scale uh, distributed systems, and you know out of you know they they were building um, hierarchical structures, and they ended up funding a ton of work down the road um, in a bunch of labs. So a lot of the labs that were doing peer to peer research switched entirely to doing cloud infrastructure research, and so um, you know that's, that's another avenue. It's another point, and then I think uh, probably third or fourth, where third was there was no digital currency, so you couldn't actually pay people correctly like you had a bunch of trusted you you had the beginnings of cryptocurrency yeah like mojo there was those mojo was a currency as i recall that's right so so you had the beginnings of digital currencies but they were still very unproven and still i think relied on on significant trust in a bunch of places so you didn't have the same the same fungibility that you sorry the same level of trustlessness that you have with something like bitcoin um and you didn't have uh yeah, I think like the properties were not quite there yet with digital currencies. I think another one was just the the hardware, the hardware around that people had yeah. um, did not warrant a peer to peer structure yet. Meaning, it, it made sense for a number of use cases, um, but a, a different set of use cases like didn't make that much sense. Like, it's interesting to think about you know computing and normal computing problems this way because a lot of people always get hung up on on how things scale. Uh, but when you actually think about the total magnitude of data in, in a problem, uh, sometimes you realize, oh yeah, like just throw that in, into one server, and like you have one server, and maybe you replicate that to like you have five servers that are all full copies of the index, and like you're done, right? Like you don't have to build a very complicated distributed system to deal with this because your total d- amount of data is way smaller than like the, the latest disks, right? So like whatever. So um, let's think about this just to put this in context. 
in a lot of ways, history is repeating itself and the same ideas cycle back. I've heard Mark Andreessen say this before that, you know, uh, Webvan, you know, he'll keep funding ideas that didn't work over and over again because eventually they'll work. So yeah. Instacart and Webvan. So it seems like a lot of these ideas are well known to researchers and computer scientists. We're trying them again. And there's a bunch of things that are different. And you listed a few of them. But to enumerate them so I understand, it's just the tools are better. Is that one of them? Yeah, massively. So just the tools are better. Two, something about the hardware infrastructure of um oh, yeah the, of like bandwidth plus cpu computing, computing change like just the, yeah. the numbers the actual raw numbers that people have either just in disks so it's moore's law type stuff yeah I th- well it's not just moore's law because you have to account so it's, it's yeah so you have accelerating returns in in you know computing and in, in storage and and so on not so much in bandwidth right so another so an interesting point to compare is like realizing that storage is um decreasing in cost super rapidly whereas bandwidth is not and bandwidth, um, you know, it always feels like the internet is really slow because we continue building larger and larger applications and larger media, but then we we can't get to, um, yeah, we can't get to the moving around, um, moving it around as much as. Uh, sorry, let me say that again. Um, we have so there's this trade-off between uh, storage and bandwidth, where where storage is is significantly, um, you know. Ch- it's getting cheaper at a, at, a, at a really rapid rate, whereas bandwidth is not. And because of that, what you end up with is like the feeling that constantly you're saturating your pipe and that constantly the internet is slow and so on, but you're just putting a lot more data through it. Yeah. Um, and, it and bandwidth is just not improving as fast. And so eventually we're going to get to a point where it might actually be cheaper to ship around stuff um, to consumers. Hard drives with 747. It it's crazy. I mean, like already if you, if you look at... at um, at how large companies move data, they do not send it over the internet. They send it over the you know over packages or move it around physically in some other way, like or, or direct fiber. Like some like if you do data center to data centers transfer, you have a direct fiber line, and it's not actually on the internet. That's right. Like that. That's a yeah. So if you have fiber, to, yeah. If you have like some really fast you know uplink or you know some really fast link, not really an uplink because you're in the core. Um, you some really fast link between two data centers, then then yeah. Um, but like for example, if you're a company and you're trying to put a ton of data into Amazon, Amazon will say, "Hey, like just ship us a hard drive and we'll put it on for you." Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like a so there's packet switching and then there's also package switching. So okay, so <laughs> are those the big difference? Like I'm just trying to I did the enumeration. Am I forgetting any other major factor about why this time like we're running the same play again, but this time it's going to work? Well, I, I I don't think it's the same play. I think it's vastly different. I think that when you think about um, what the projects are trying to do and what they're building and what applications are 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 people are going for, it it's very different. So I think like okay. maybe Mojo was like one exception uh, in that like they were re- really far ahead thinking about cryptocurrency and resource sharing and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, because remember it was hard drive space. Like again, as a user, right. it was like I could rent out my hard drive space. I could rent out my CPU side. There's three things. It was bandwidth, CPU. You earn mojo from each of those things. That's right. So, yeah. so if, if you think about people like, um, there were a few people around at the time, especially like the cypherpunks mailing list. Like you can go back and read a bunch of ideas that have just become reality in the last few years. There were definitely a lot of people already thinking about the things that we're doing now, but nowhere close to doing them. And so there's a, one big difference between this wave and, and the last wave is that, is that the being able to access a range of applications that were kind of dreams and ideas back then, but were, were kind of far away, um, makes this wave 
actually quite different in goals, right? Like when you when you think about peer-to-peer in 2001, you don't think about Mojo that much. You think about Napster. You think about Kazaa. You think about uh, you know those um, systems that you know BitTorrent maybe was like the you know it was actually in the tail end. Like I think BitTorrent got massive and so on, but it was like there right as a whole bunch of the other ones were failing right and, and going away. And so when people think about peer-to-peer and like what was working really well with peer-to-peer networks at the time. It was mostly pretty simple peer-to-peer structures that, you know, they, definitely there were like people using DHDs. There were definitely people doing some amount of like distribution of, of files and, and so on. But it was mostly around like very simple file sharing problems. And it was okay. So it's a, again. So to summarize, the use case really matters. That's what you're saying. So I think. Well, I think both the tooling and the use case that people got to are very different. And like you, you didn't yet have smart contracts. Or like you, you had the beginnings of what smart contracts were going to be able to do, but you didn't have them in the level of trustlessness that, say, Ethereum gives you today. And that is a very important piece of infrastructure that once you, once you deploy something like Ethereum, a whole bunch of other things become instantly possible. And which, you know, it's did not have at the time. Like you did not have this kind of, you know, worldwide, um, you know, a computer effectively that allows you to run some, um, very expensive, but but trustless code, right? Like you, you don't have to trust the the um, the com- the computers running this 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 code um, on on their output, right? And like you have a way to verify that all of the computation was done correctly, and you, all this kind of stuff. Let's try to use the same thought experiment. Um, there was inf- there's infinite demand for free music. Like I remember, I was I'm exactly the right age. I was in college when Napster took off. Everyone, there was a product that everyone wanted. Yes, it was illegal. But there was infinite demand for that. What is the closest analog for the current generation of things that you think there's inherent in consumer demand for um, that can drive that can be the equivalent of the thing that pushes this wave? So there's a lot there because first of all, it's not about consumers. Um, okay. This peer-to-peer wave and the reason why it's massive is not because consumers are using it, uh, and and I think that's one of the things that Silicon Valley has failed to understand. Um, I think in 2000. 13 and 14, a lot of the blockchain tech was being built in New York and Europe and far ahead of Silicon Valley. And I remember having a lot of conversations with people here in New York and, and Europe. And just the, the, the level of thought outside of Silicon Valley was vastly superior. And it was very surprising and annoying to me because I was like, wait, you know, <laughs> Silicon Valley is supposed to be the place where like, all of the tech gets built and so on. And the, and the reality is that it's not that there were, was more thinking in that certainly people in Silicon Valley understood all of that and had thought about it and so on. But the understanding about what businesses or what value propositions might actually be useful um, in Silicon Valley was dramatically centered around consumers. And in reality, what what Bitcoin and Ethereum um, did was allow you to create any kind of financial instrument um, extremely cheaply and with almost free verification of correct proceeding of this financial instrument, which is not normally a consumer need. Okay, well, well, let's take another, like, regards to the consumer part, what is that, what is the burning desire need that you think is best solved? But it's not one thing. Like, like it really isn't one okay, thing. Okay, well, can we name Maybe one? Maybe we should just talk about Filecoin then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? Is it, is it, so, like, what is, the, what is the burning, and it's okay if it's not consumers, but what is the thing that, with Filecoin, um, that is going to make, whether it's business or consumers, people get really excited about? Using it, so, and and Falcon is not representative of the entire industry, right? Like Falcon is one example. Mm-hmm. Um, with Falcon, the the point is being able to. So so this is a whole different argument that I think is is makes sense with or without a peer to peer winter or summer. Like 
the fact the 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 thoughts around Filecoin are about thinking about the massive latent storage that's out there and putting it to good use, right? Like there's there's exabytes of, of storage yeah. that are not in use right now. And that if you were at, were to add them to the to the market, you would drive the price down significantly. And so I think like trying to and that's true whether or not there's currently a peer-to-peer wave or, or whether or not people are excited about peer-to-peer in any way um, or decentralization. And now there's a, there's a point that you can build a network like Filecoin that can use decentralization and can use financial assets created um, cryptographically to then organize a massive group of people around the planet to then do this, right? And I think you just look at... so so. If, Forgetting all of the the excitement around centralization, just think about Bitcoin as a way to incentivize people to add a bunch of hardware to a network. Um, there's been nothing like it. It generated a massive, massive amount of of um, you know computing power dedicated to do one single thing, which is you know try and and find find hashes that are of low target and um, and you have tens of thousands of people around the planet that were that worked really hard to add a bunch of hardware to this, and you end up with this insane hash rate that is, um, you know, when you actually work out like the the, the amount of power and, and computation that it's using, it's like one of the one of the most powerful computing networks on the planet. And so when you take that idea of you saying saying create a very strong financial incentive for people to do something around the planet, and you then couple it with building some other kind of resource sharing network, something. Um, Something like file storage, you you can organize this massive um, massive network as well, and you can put all of that latent storage that already is there and depreciating and, and going to waste into valuable use. And so, so Falcon is a business around. You know, it's a, you have to think about these these networks are as services and businesses that are solving some set of problems, but it's not always just one problem. And that's that's I think fundamentally different about about this this type of thing than normal consumer products. Um, well, they solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. You said financial, though. So, like, again, they're doing it for financial reasons. So again, what I'm looking for is what is the incentive for someone to get involved, whether it's a business or a consumer? So, you're, so it's, it's the reason you would put a miner on the network. For Filecoin specifically, the reason okay. why somebody would add storage to the network, the primary motivator will be money. That's what's going to drive this massive amount of storage. Now, a secondary and very important motivator is also the fact that like data is completely centralized in a whole bunch of providers, and we get a lot of businesses and and, and people highly concerned about this that want to distribute their data across a number of providers and want stronger guarantees. They want a different set of features, but you, you don't necessarily need peer to peer to to achieve that. Um, that just happens to come with a package, right? And so I think for for you think about Bitcoin miners, and you can you can think about the the motivations of Bitcoin miners are not you know fundamentally about um, just enabling peer to peer and so on. They're, they they're the huge motivator there is money. Um, now it, that's not true of the early Bitcoin miners, right? The early Bitcoin miners, a lot of them were were primarily motivated by building a digital currency that was not controlled by any government. And, and that's something very different than, than what we have today. What we have today is, is, a, is a structure where it's a massive business and people are, like, going for it. Um, and so, like, that's, that's, you know, I think fundamentally different. But, but it, it doesn't make sense to try and, like, box it and to say, like, hey, there's one thing that the entire industry is, is trying to do. Like, and, and Falcon is, like, completely different than the entire industry. It's like we're using things from the industry to create a very powerful service. But, and the reason I mentioned financial instruments is because that is a fundamental innovation, innovation that both Bitcoin and Ethereum introduced. The ability to create financial instruments extremely cheaply without spending tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Instead, you know, writing a few lines of code. Um, and you don't have to litigate this in court if it goes wrong. 
it, it just automatically automatically settles in, in a computer. And so it's what's what happened with with the blockchain stuff is that software began to eat finance and law in a way that had never happened before. Um, there were a whole bunch of things that were kind of waiting or like a lot of ideas that people had had for for a long time, some of them you know a few years, some of them decades, that got knocked loose by the existence of a digital currency that was ubiquitous. And suddenly a ton of these applications were being able to be built. So, so it's, it's a very different thing um, than, than, the, than the early peer-to-peer peer time. Um, the fact that that IPFS and Falcoin happen to relate a lot to the early peer-to-peer goals um, is, is a side effect. The majority of the blockchain world does not care at all about those early goals. They, they care about different goals. They care about a different kind of decentralization. Well, so decentralization of power, not of resources. So Falcon happens to care about decentralization of resources and distribution of, and like use and all that kind of stuff. But it's but it's a very different different thing. How are people incentivized with Mojo to like put their put their drives online? Um, you would get Mojo was the name of the current whatever it was tokens. It wasn't really okay. currency. You would get you would earn Mojo and you could spend it on other stuff and they were very vague about that but you could spend it on other storage okay um, and what's interesting so it wasn't liquid is like, that yeah in the same way yeah it was it was kind of like when bitcoin very first came out it was sort of like a cool thing on slash dot right okay. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like a serious project um and what was interesting is people spent people. Well, well people spent a lot of time um doing black hat stuff to try to earn more like it was very fun yeah to try to get more yeah i think a lot of people like i used to read the commit list and a lot of people a lot of what they had to write was anti-hacking stuff which you would expect you know a good someone with a, a hacking brain whenever they see new stuff it's always fun to try to take advantage of it uh yeah cool so what do you what do you think this is sort of an aside but i read i read yc applications for all this stuff and i um i tr- i'm trying to understand what the best use, what do you, where do smart contracts help you as a founder? This is a little bit outside of the IPFS thing, but like, what is the use case that in its current state are most useful for smart contracts? Because I see a lot of people applying with these and I've yet to see one um, with a non-conceptual use case. So is there a case in your business where you would use smart contracts? I mean, you can think of Filecoin as a smart contract. Um, whether or not it's implemented as a smart contract on top of Ethereum or not, yeah. um, you can think of the idea of a protocol declaring what the rules of a finan- of a transaction is going are going to be, and a very clear cryptographic way of you know proceeding through that transaction and verifying it at the end. Like that's effectively a smart contract. It might not be whether you you know you can think of Bitcoin the whole thing as a smart contract. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like now, I, I feel in the metaphor. I'm just I'm thinking of like. The the part where we eat the financial world. I'm like, what's yeah, yeah, the I mean, fir- like what's the lowest hanging right? fruit? Like you're seeing you're seeing um, you know super. You, you can go today and start writing a something that behaves like equity or something that is a derivative or you know all of these kinds of financial instruments that would take you a ton of time to kind of think about and, and reason about and, and like inject into into the jurisdiction you know any kind of legal jurisdiction in the, in the world. And you're now able to do that in a in a totally different way with a whole bunch of assets that represent real value. Um, and so, like, I, I I think that there's a ton of these that have very direct use cases and applications, but they're not they're not consumer. And and so that's that's why you're seeing a wave of things that seem weird to Silicon, Silicon Valley. They seem like oh, this would never work. 
And yet, there's a ton of companies out there in the world that actually need these kinds of things, that actually think through, like, oh, wow, like, that means I don't have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars in legal just to understand, reason about, and conduct these transactions, and then have to worry about litigation down the road of, like, in the millions of dollars to try and make sure the transaction is safe. Um, you can then turn that into, into, like, single dollars, right, of, like, running transaction fees. And, like, that is a massive shift. And we haven't even begun to see the, the offshoots of that. Like, there's been the beginnings of this. Like, you, can, you see a ton of assets being created in Ethereum that have a bunch of different kinds of properties. Um, but they're, they're fundamental. Like, the, these kinds of assets, you know, it's effectively, like, you, you get to create any kind of financial instrument that you want as long as you can reason about how to program it and you can deploy it into the network. Um, and so you can solve a whole bunch of these kinds of problems. So for one, one interesting example is insurance, right? So like you can do insurance trivially on, on top of Ethereum. Like there's, a, I think, a, a really fun one that, you know, I, I've yet to use it because like I, I, my, my perception on a lot of these things, like I think maybe insurance is an interesting consumer one, actually. So an insurance policy is a very simple idea. Um, there's a whole bunch of regulation in the, in the regular you know, jurisdictions when you think about how do insurance policies work. But you can definitely create structures and financial structures around insuring some activity. And so there's a contract out there where you can tell it your flight and you can buy an insurance policy for a few ether and it pays out. Like if you, if you, um, if you miss, a, if the flight gets delayed, um, then it pays you out, pays some out, out some amount. If the flight gets canceled, it pays out some amount. And all of that can happen by just writing a few, you know, a few dozen lines of smart, you know, maybe hundreds of lines of, of solidity, and it needs some sort of oracle that brings in the the real world data of of the flights. And once you have that, you're set, and you can now create an insurance policy. So I think I think this was I don't know exactly who built it, but there's it was a effectively a trivial project, and you now have what normally would take a company of dozens to hundreds of people like reasoning about all of the legal landscape around insurance and how to provide this and then like legal protections of how to make sure this goes correctly and how do you collect and things and like just all of that madness goes away completely by replacing it with with a single smart contract right and so i think those are the kinds of things you start seeing and there's a big bottleneck right now which is that you know the the fundamental innovation is one around so the uh, let me rephrase this, because I don't think it's characteristic of the entire, pro- entire space. One of the fundamental innovations of something like Ethereum is this decreasing you know, software-eating finance and, and law. And when you can create these contracts um, and financial instruments really trivially, a whole bunch of things open up. And so, so far, the people that have waded through the difficulty in using these platforms to do this happen to be people that are looking at large-scale transactions, like things that, that would otherwise require a lot of money to do, or things that suddenly become possible to do in the space of crypto assets, and they're just kind of transplants of the, of the regular world. They're looking at some way of doing some transactions in the regular world, and they say, wouldn't it be great to do that with Ether? And then they go and build it. Um, what you're going to start seeing in the, in, in the near term is that there's this blocker around user experience where right now n- nobody can use these uh, blockchain systems from normal consumer uh, devices and with the same kind of UX that people expect. So there's a massive barrier there where a ton of applications that um, can be geared towards consumers, right? Like so, so instead of starting from a consumer need, um, or, or rather instead of like the entire space solving consumer needs, now you can create something that, be, that, that now solves some important consumer need. 
Right now, it cannot get deployed easily, and it cannot take off because the UX is so hard to get right. Um, and you have, you know, every individual project has to spend an enormous amount of, of resources thinking about the, the UX of the users. Like, one great example of this is OpenBazaar. It's a great project. Like, they're building, like, this completely decentralized uh, eBay-type thing. And they allow buyers and sellers to come in and, 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 you know, buy and sell things. And so when the project started, they had to build all their peer-to-peer stack, like, from, from the ground up. And like that was a huge undertaking for them. Then they found, you know, at the same time we were building IPFS, and so they found IPFS, and, and you know, it made a lot of sense for them to switch over to IPFS, and, and they did that. And so like that, hopefully saved them saved them a lot of time in the lower layers. But then they had to go and build all of the UX side of things, and so they had an, an application that you could download and run locally. But then, you know, thinking about, thinking about mobile, you now have to think of and build a mobile application and give yeah. people the same kind of uh, utility. Like that, that is a yet another massive undertaking, and they're doing it. Like it's, it's I'm super impressed. Like they have this. This awesome mobile app that you know I think it's, I don't know if it's out yet, but it's gonna it's it's super exciting. Like like I think it's the one of the very first things in the entire space that like gives you like the really nice um, you know normal UX that you would expect in normal products. And you know the entire space has to catch up. So I think it's gonna take about a year or two before you start seeing these these things get mainstream consumer use. Uh, it could happen faster with a lot of these things. Um, you know. Maybe it's one library away, right? Like somebody writes a really solid library that, that kind of solves a bunch of the problems and then everything gets easy. Um, but, you know, just because you, you're not seeing a ton of consu- consumer use things yet does not mean they aren't about to hit in a huge way. But that's what I wanted to focus on before because you kind of, you kind of like just, juxtapose like 2013, 2014, like people not really getting it here, things not being built here. Obviously in 2017, things have changed. Right. Like what has changed and like what's motivating people now to start building these things? Because I wonder, like, you know, we have a lot of founders listening and they're, they're like trying to figure out the ideas, like what's needed. What, what changed to make this possible? What changed to make what specific possible? Because there's a lot of. Things. Uh, yeah. OK. So so one one trajectory is like, OK, why is San Francisco into this now? Um, and then the other is like, what changed to like start pushing for, obviously Ethereum came out, but then like all these products are following as well. I think San Francisco and Silicon Valley got interested when the ICO craze happened, when you suddenly had projects raising tens, you know, 20, 35, $100 million. Suddenly everyone was like, what the hell is going on? What's happening? And it was actually the money that was the, the thing that drew attention. And that's, I don't know. I think that's pretty short-sighted. I think the the underlying um, differences, or or like the underlying hard foundational work that you know people are seeing, like reaping the benefits of right now, like all of that that creation of value and so on, happened over the last two years with Ethereum, which was a project that here was seen as like this crazy science project thing that like was never going to work and was like too crazy and so on, and was disregarded completely by tons of people, and they just. Failed to do the, the 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 deep thinking of like looking at these these very contrarian perspectives um, and contrarian ideas that that like dared to question underlying base assumptions about consumer products today, which is that nobody really cares about giving your data to everyone. Nobody really cares about trust. Nobody really cares about um, just like running these kinds of transactions. Everyone has you know some easy way to to use their mobile app. Everyone trusts uh, Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon. Airbnb or whatever, um, and it's really just about convenience. And if you don't have co- something that's convenient, screw it. It doesn't. It's not. It's never going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was like just 
false. Like, I, I, I think that perspective, um, you know, I don't mean to characterize the entire space of Silicon Valley that way. I think there were a ton of people thinking very deeply about what Bitcoin was going to do to the world. And a lot of people invested very heavily into Bitcoin um, and creating Bitcoin com companies. And, and that, you know, turned out in a num number of ways really well and in other cases not so well. But I think what, what can be said about the whole space is, like, we're seeing projects emerging that are about building large-scale infrastructure that might take years to build out before the utility is shown. And that's just something that normal VC can't entertain. Like, VC is not built for long-term investment in things that are extremely high-risk and building some deep foundational technology. VC is tuned for 10-year returns, which means that in two, three years, you have to like, show very strong um, you know, sign of like, massive adoption and a, a really strong business, which means that if something is more than two years out in development and there's research questions to be solved, it doesn't fit. And so you have to go and figure all of that out before. Now, Historically, it wasn't this... The government that funded all this stuff? That's right. So, so one of the, and this is you know, part of why I'm building Protocol Labs, which is that um, there's this massive gap between, um, there's this huge open area where like, stuff is not getting funded around yeah, building large-scale infrastructure. Like you couldn't, my, my claim is you couldn't build something as free and open and that works as well as the internet today um, because no group would fund it. Uh, and, and what you would end up with is a, a massively stunted version of something that is highly centralized and controlled by a couple, by a couple of groups um, and that wouldn't have the, the amazing generality of something like TCPIP. Like, part, part of what's beautiful about TCPIP, DNS, like that whole era of protocols was that people worked super hard for months and years at a time to think about the interfaces and refine it so that you could end up with something sufficiently abstract to, to support a ton of use cases and sufficiently concrete to actually work today. And that kind of development is not super fast and takes a lot of work and takes a lot of money. And that's not something that you know, VC funds. VC funds clear application but use why, cases. But why would, why should VC, like in those well, cases, I'm those were done by universities, right? And Bell Lab, like the Bell Labs, those exactly. things exist today. It's mostly doing AI stuff, but like, the closest equivalent to that are things like OpenAI or Google Brain and all of that, where like there's absolutely no practical use of that stuff. But man, there's a lot of money being plowed into that research. No practical use for Google Brain? They're not productizing it immediately. Uh, I vastly, I, I disagree okay. very strongly. I think that, that a very clear use for Google Brain is massive cost reductions to a company like Google. Yeah. I mean, I guess I can speak much more confidently about OpenAI because I actually know how that works. And like sure. there's not... We're not like productizing, but you see a lot of stuff being rolled in, like speech to text already. Yeah, like, but it's like again, it's not a startup. Like, there's no bottom, there's no double bottom line where people are trying to monetize. Like, that's not why it's being funded. Uh, so I mean, I'm just saying, like, his, if you want people working on this foundational stuff, it seems like if you're trying to replicate what you feel like worked really well, do you think it needs to be direct? Does the does the analog need to be directly replicated? I'm or? pointing out that it. it these kinds of projects don't get funded. Uh, and when you could see it with something like SpaceX and Tesla. Um, SpaceX and Tesla both went through major, major funding issues, right? If Elon hadn't been That's personally correct. wealthy, both projects would have probably failed. Yeah. And, and here, you know, you, 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 that is a clear example of something that is, you know, SpaceX may, may be 
not directly uh, you know consumer perspective, but Tesla definitely right. Like Tesla is a is a very consumer oriented thing, but it was extremely difficult. It was a large scale, long term project that just you know scared the hell out of VC with good reason. Like it's extremely unlikely that you would get any of that to work. Um, but what I'm highlighting is not that necessarily VC has to fund this. What I'm saying is that that's not what VC funds. And because that's not what VC funds, and then there is no, you know, no strong ARPA like organizing major large-scale infrastructure endeavors like it used to, then you have this gap and this hole uh, of things that weren't getting funded. And and Bell Labs is a great example. Like I, 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 part of the reason that I started Protocol Labs is to try and, cr- and recreate kind of the spirit of, of of Bell Labs in a in an organization at least focused around around networks. And and the only like the reason that you had something like Bell Labs happening was because you had a, an entity that was um, very enlightened in its perspective about technology and understood how to innovate and understood how how large scale innovations could be done and with deep investment over decades right like they they would run projects for multiple decades like sometimes they would break up projects and like you know here's like these first five years are going to be about this. These next five years are going to be about this other thing, and so on. Out of curiosity, you wouldn't see a, a product until much later. Do you know what their budget was if we translate it into modern dollars? Uh, I don't know what the budget is, but it's like tens, tens to hundreds of billions, or or more. It's well, massive. But then, you, but then you figured it out with Ethereum, right? Because the value gets accrued to the people that are creating and developing the protocol, which is a fundamental shift. Yes, and so, but that's I think a, something a bit different. I want to draw an analogy between what happened at the labs and Google Brain. So Bell Labs was about constructing massive cost reductions for Bell. So the reason Bell Labs got to thrive as an organization was because it represented a very strong financial interest for this massive monopoly that had an enormous business. And so they had deep pockets to just invest deeply into into things that were going to save them a lot of money later. And so Bell could look at things like, oh, wow, you know, vacuum tubes are really inefficient or vacuum tubes break a lot and it's a huge pain to repair them, uh, wouldn't it be great if we had something better? And it basically took something like 20 years. Um, I think it's like 10 to 20 years before um, before the transistor, right? And, it, and it's something like, um, I might be wrong in those states, but the point is Bell Labs understood the need, Bell Labs, uh, of, of this massive cost reduction that happened. And it had it as one of the open problems. And so if you were a researcher at Bell Labs at the time, one of the things that you could work on that was seen as kind of, you know, a a very important problem to solve was replace vacuum tubes, create something that can replace vacuum tubes. And it took a whole bunch of open-ended thinking and, you know, deep fundamentals research from a physics perspective and solid-state physics. And, you know, this is like the story of Shockley and Bardeen and and Bertain and so on. to be able to come up with something that became the transistor that solved that problem. Um, but that was an innovation that happened over you know, decades in timescales and primarily motivated by cost reductions on, on, on the large-scale bell, bell front. And so the, the funding that Bell could feed into funding tens to hundreds of researchers thinking about all these problem, these specific problems on a, on a 10-year time horizon to try and, and get that kind of like cost reduction is something that only massive monopolies to date have been able to fund. Mm-hmm. It's like basically massive monopolies either in business or in, or, in, or in power, right? So it's either massive monopolies like Bell or Google or massive monopolies like the U.S. in, in power of being able to say, we need something that connects all the computers around and we just need it, so like just fund it, whatever or it like takes. like the space race. 
or the space race, right? Like we need to, we need to get to the moon. Like <laughs> I don't care how much money it takes, just like make it happen, right? And so, so yeah. that kind of directed power um, and, and funding can can predictably innovate, like which is kind of amazing. Like you can, you you, you Inbit Labs, you had a, a place where they could chart out the things that they were working on and kind of think through when they were gonna. Not exactly and precisely per year, but like they, they would know the relative progress through a whole bunch of open-ended problems that whose solutions ended up gaining people, giving people Nobel prizes, right? Like this was the kind of innovation that that is seen and recognized by the world as like this stroke of genius that that you know would have been so hard and so unpredictable and so on, and yet Bell Labs was able to like reliably get a whole bunch of of researchers to to achieve these kinds of innovations, and so that unfortunately, like the model of why Bell Labs. The questions around why Bell Labs ultimately failed and, and, and fell apart have to do more with the surrounding ecosystem, like its funding source. Uh, Was that when they broke, broke apart the monopoly? That's right. So, so breaking Bell apart effectively stifled and killed Bell, Bell Labs. So a few things happened. One was the rise of Silicon Valley and the great invention, or like not invention, but like the great use of stock options um, or ju- just giving stock to, to everyone in a company working on something, caused a ton of people um, working on very, you know, research-oriented things at the time to become quite wealthy, right? Or, or like, get, you know, very significant personal returns. And that, coupled with the excitement around all of the stuff that was happening in Silicon Valley in the 50s and 60s, with, you know, a number of people kind of moving out and then coming back and, and you know, talking about all the great and exciting things that were happening in the West started to drain a lot of people out of Bell Labs and, and out of Boston. And so it was this, you know, it's known as this like brain drain. And uh, part of that, what, what happened there was not only were people leaving and going and creating other research organizations that had different funding models, um, but Bell also started getting broken up. And um, so this is more like the 80s, 90s. I forget exactly the exact date on this. Um, but when, when Bell got broken up, Bell Labs had to find a way to like charge the you know new separate entities for all of its work, and it just became infeasible to fund and maintain a massive organization like that. And so it ended up, ended up breaking apart. So there's a few like interesting financial reasons why Bell Labs didn't couldn't continue existing, but the research organization itself was amazing and continued to be amazing for a very long time. Now, and so yeah, so according to one site, their budget was 500 million in '74, which translates to 1.5 billion today. Or two percent of AT and T's uh, gross revenue. One billion. So in one and a half. Billion. Yeah, one and a half billion. So yeah, it was like, yeah, all okay. right. So it was like two hours minded off. So I was, I said it was something like ten to a hundred. Um, that's a lot better. That that is a lot cheaper than than what I expected. Like, uh, foundational research to to cost. But that's still massive, right? Like being able to to I guess on the on the scale of ten years, like yeah, that's ten billion. Yeah. Right. So so you you have to have ten to fifty billion and ready to commit them. to for like two decades to be able to undertake some of these projects. Um, yeah, probably self-driving cars is getting that kind of money today. Probably AI is getting that kind of money today. Yeah. There's a few, th- like not many though, but it's like there's a few things that maybe if you added all the R&D budget being put into it are getting that, but it's definitely not. Probably and, and so for- I, think, I think something like Google Brain is a clear example of this kind of thing happening again where, where Google saw massive advance advancements in machine learning, we want to apply all of those massive advancements to, ma- to machine learning into a whole bunch of the normal Google applications, and we want all of our applications to get better, faster, stronger, and so on, and reduce costs. 
And not only are we going to be able to do a whole bunch of new things and cool things, but we're also going to be able to do them a lot cheaper, which gives us, which effectively is making money, right? So like the, the thing to think about is once you're an organization that's big enough, you don't have to sell more products to make money. You, you just have to cut your costs. And to make sure I understand, you're saying that is analogous to the Bell Labs model. That is. I'm just making sure I yeah. get what you're saying. So I, I wouldn't want to claim that something like Google Brain or or even X is akin to to Bell Labs because I think that that's that's a that very different research very different organizations. I think that that Google Brain and, and X are are much more focused on on shorter term. Um, valuable things than Bell Labs was. I think both Brain and X can't yet afford to innovate on the multi-decade timescale. They're, they're innovating in like single-decade timescales on their own. Um, I, wouldn't, I, I think that you know, if you look around the planet, they're the closest thing probably, you know, very cl- uh, but they're still kind of far away. And I think it'll take you know, much more, not only capital, but also like reach of that organization to be able to like undertake some of these larger-scale Fundamental, like when you start seeing Google funding open-ended physics research labs, like then, then, then we're in the <laughs> for a decade or more. Yeah, for a decade or more, like well, where the budget of yeah, yeah. Where, where you see it, the budget of a, of a of a Google-run physics lab have a, you know budget for a decade or more and like fifty plus researchers, and you know you start seeing some Nobel prizes won out of Google, like then then we're talking about the same thing, um, but we're far away from that, and I think the the. I don't think we'll, we'll we don't necessarily need to recreate the same kind of structure. I think what we can do is is look at a different thing that's going on and look at how innovation happens in a very different open-ended way in in the internet. So the internet has a lot of similarities with the research culture of Bell Labs in that it's extremely open. You get a lot of people thinking about problems. You you have a lot of people talking about problems and discuss, uh, not only talking about potential solutions but trying them out and so on. And so the people sharing knowledge and ideas through the internet and working on open-ended groups has been able to have very important results achieved, but they're of a very different nature. Like, you don't get something like a transistor out of, out of you know, random open source collaboration. You get something like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, which are arguably like... And like the Linux kernel. Like, just to use a very different... Yes. But like, that came out of the internet, right? The Linux kernel, that exists because the internet... Yes, the, the Linux kernel is an awesome example. I think like um, you had the ability to to undergo undertake these major major infrastructure projects um, and like things that take a long time to to create and mature um, on the internet. And a whole other interesting avenue here is how do you fund these things? Like how do you how can you fund these long term endeavors that are much more open ended and on, on the internet and so on? And that's what Bitcoin and Ethereum um, proposed one example of how you fund that. And this, is, this goes back to what you were starting to bring up earlier, which is the idea of um, you have a protocol and you, have, uh, you take that protocol and you say, hey, it's going to create a whole bunch of value. And it also has this, this native token that's going to address a whole bunch of that value. Not all of it, but some subset. And that native token is going to be of limited supply. So because we, we're creating this token, we can take some of that token and give it to the people building the protocol, which then helps, you know, they can sell it for dollars or whatever to then feed themselves. And then that way they can, like, actually fund the development of the, of the project. And this is effectively what, what Ethereum did, right? So that kind of funding model um, allows um, people to remain very close to the the actual protocol layer 
and to think deeply about the protocol itself and its concerns without having to think about a product or a service on top. Mm-hmm. So this is precisely what protocol apps as business model is. And how do we keep uh, the funding going on? Because obviously there's a certain amount of hype and excitement right now with all the ICOs happening. Oh, yeah. So, so I mean, like there's, there's a ton of stuff happening right now. Um, the, I mean, I think, I think we, yeah, I don't know how if How do you do it over continue. 10 years? Like, let's talk about, let's like drill down to, because that's a great point. We were just talking about it. What's the 10 year, like, how do you, do you have to keep selling bits? Of, not you personally, but if you're one of these folks, do you have to keep constantly reissuing tokens to keep feeding yourself? I mean, if it depends on whether or not the token appreciates, right? So if the token appreciates enough, then you're going to have to sell less and less of it over time. Yeah. So you saw this happen with Bitcoin. I mean, there were people, there were some people that were early to Bitcoin that are, are now, you know, they have their their personal wealth at a point where, um, you know, unless there was a major crash in their assets, like they don't have to work again. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Bitcoin is 10 years old now, almost, right? So it started in 2008, 2009? Roughly, yeah. Um, and so, like, you know, it's roughly 10 years old. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think maybe you could claim that the origins of Bitcoin happened through the cyberpunk mailing list and Mojination and all these other things and all those discussions. And so like, that was like long-term innovation that happened uh, and then only was getting funded afterwards. Um, so it's like a you know, very different approach than, say, the Bell Labs, you know, centralized perspective. Um, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think the funding of these things is going to depend entirely on whether these things are, are continue to be useful, right? So if, if Ethereum continue, continues to be useful five, 10 years from now, you're going to have, and, and continues to accrue, um, continues to grow, right? So if Ethereum becomes uh, more and more successful, continues to solve a whole bunch of problems, then an Ether is going to be worth a ton more. And as that Ether is worth a lot more, you're now going to have, you know, tens of thousands of people that right now are crypto millionaires turning into, you know, 10 million, 10, they're going to have 10 million, 100 million, potentially billionaires, who knows, right? Like, I don't know, I think at that point, like you, the, the valuation of something like Ethereum gets, gets as high as something like Google and, and, and Apple and so on, and who knows, maybe, it's, maybe it is worth that. Uh, but I don't think it's quite, <laughs> quite there yet. Um, but, you know, you, you have this, this, this very different way of, of building a service where you take a share of the worth of the service, um, in a sense, like having Ether is kind of having a share of the worth of the network, um, it's not the worth of the network totally. The, the network is worth more than that, but it is a subset of that. And then you can, you know, if you choose to hold it, then in, in a cruise in value, then you have now gotten a return. And so it's risky. Like, you know, definitely I would not encourage anyone to to invest so deeply into cryptocurrencies that they have, you know, a very significant fraction of their of their network so, in that. You know, the during the dot com bubble. Yeah. Everyone was a day trader and everyone made, you couldn't lose. <laughs> um, and totally. it, it actually, if you would have bought and held to this day and you were lucky enough to have enough exposure to what, like Apple and Google, it actually would have been okay. But if back in the day you were day trading and you didn't have one of those big winners, or if you just lost all your money in the early days, you know, or if you just sold early, if you just sold early, yeah. it would have been rough. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of tricky right now because it's really hard to lose money. <laughs> so there's, there's a very, big, you know, kind of honeymoon period right now yeah. where a ton of people are have just finally understood the massive value that can be generated by these things and the excitement is around and everyone is really stoked. And I mean if you if you caught Google and you invested early on, like if you were one of the early investors in Google great. during the height of the bubble, right? Like or PayPal or any of these amazing companies that got built through that period. Um, I guess actually Google, Google didn't go out to 04, so I stand corrected. I'm trying to think of a 99 who could you have caught like if you were a day trader, definitely Apple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't think of 
this like day trading on IPO markets. Like you have to think about this. I just Again, mean it was, the same thing. it was the same thing where it was popular media was like, hey, you could buy this stock and make three. It's more of like the yeah, way people yeah, are. But like if, if you invested that way, you probably ended up getting, you know, stuck into thrown into the bubble and like you, you probably lost a ton of money. But if you held, I'm making the argument that if you would have held and you had a decent portfolio, right. then you actually, even if you were the dumbest money at the top of the market, you would have done okay. Yeah, maybe. I, we I can do the well, math. So like you could have, yeah. so is that maybe a question? Like, do you apply like an ETF model right now and just buy some of everything? And you have I to mean, hold, possibly, right? Exactly. You kind of have, like, right? Like one of the learnings is, yeah, go ahead. I, I think <laughs> the more important thing that's going on deeper, which is that a whole bunch of important things are getting built. And you can, if you find them, you can fund them and um, you can be part of them and you can help create them and create massive amounts of value. And the people that do that are going to get greatly rewarded. And I think that goes along with diligence. Like you can't just approach, I, I think my perspective on this and the way that I look at a lot of the space is, is that I think deeply about each of these pieces of technology and I, and I approach it much more like investing into, into a startup or investing into a project that I think is worthwhile and should happen. Um, even if I lose all, all the money that I invest in it. Um, and I think about the underlying value that's being created. Like, what, what is this thing going to enable in two, five, ten years from now? Um, you know, I, I think in the crypto space, you, you don't even need to think ten years but out. But just like to do a really minor two, push on that, that's a little different, though, than basic research. Like, isn't part of basic research right. you don't want to... You want to believe that the researchers are good, but you don't actually want to worry about what they're working on because they're going to do great stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? This is something I go through when I'm looking at these. It's like you want to understand that it's a good team and you believe in their vision. But if you get too in the details, yeah. you'll like miss the boat. Right, right? right. And then I think like, so we're mixing, mixing so many, uh, we're mixing so many different topics, which is awesome, by the way. I, I rarely get to get to get this deep into, into a lot of these conversations. And I love it. I just, I don't mean to imply Bitcoin or Ethereum is like Bell Labs. It's like a different thing. It's like a different thing that, that, is, that is showing off that, or, or, or what you get out of it is you can see innovation of the kind that you saw at something like Bell Labs happening in the open internet with people exchanging ideas, with people like scrounging up funding in whatever way they, they can until later. And like now that we have cryptocurrency, now a new funding model can emerge, and now we can start thinking about this in a deeper way. So when I think about structuring Bell, uh, sorry, when I think of structuring about protocol labs, um, you know, we, I, we think about Filecoin as a specific service and business that has a much shorter term perspective. It's like Filecoin has to work and be successful and valuable in two, three years, not five or ten. And we're nowhere near close to be able to. Well, you're already two, threes, you're in. So it is five years in. You're already, the company is in two or three years. And two, so, three years, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it is no, actually. We, yeah. were, we were building IPFS first, right? So, so IPFS is out there and creating a ton of value for people. Yeah. But IPFS is not something that we plan to monetize directly. Like IPFS is, a, is a, a large scale infrastructure project that happens to be at a layer where you should not put money in. Like money should not go and be a question on moving data. Money should be a concern that's applied on top to a subset of those transactions. And so a subset of those transactions are going to be the Falcon transactions. And now we're building out, we're setting off and, and doing all this work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a yeah. So I think I think you know I, I really start the clock on on Filecoin, uh, and and we've had a whole bunch of like detours, right? Like we've we've had uh, you know we ended up building this whole platform called Coinlist, uh, so you can you can go and 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 have token sales um, and so on because like that whole madness of how do you correctly and legally do a token sale is a you know huge rabbit hole. Uh, probably shouldn't we could have that burned now, the whole hour on that. We don't yeah need yeah yeah. That. yeah. Um, but you know we. Built a platform that allows people to to do that 
in a compliant way in the U.S. Uh, using you know a set of documents that we've developed called the SAFT, similar to the SAFE but for tokens, um, and so on. And like that was a detour that took like like you know four six months of like work, uh, but it's going to end up being super valuable for the entire rest of the ecosystem and for Product Labs in that it, we will have not only Falcon but other projects on the road that will end up using CoinList. And you know, like, and longer term investment, you like invest a little bit deeper into this thing, and now you have it. Um, and so, like, you know, Falcon has been delayed by IPFS and its success, and by things like Coinless and so on. And like now, we're like, we've managed to successfully switch gears to go and invest very deeply into the whole into the whole uh, thing. One of the most interesting things, probably about Falcon, that you'll see coming out very soon is we spent. Um, a, about a month and a half rethinking the entire protocol from scratch and and looking at it in, a, in you know looking at all of the advancements that have happened in distributed systems and crypto and, and um, the blockchain space in general in the last two or three years since the, the paper came out and and just like we got to upgrade all of the entire system while it's still in in in, a, in you know before it's out and live and people are using it. Um, and it ends being a very different protocol, right? So we're about to like ship the the new Falcon paper, and it's a very different protocol than than when you when people first saw it. Has solves a whole bunch of important problems, and we had for a brief period of like you know a month and a half uh, something akin to like a Bell Labs feel of like four or five people in a house doing nothing but reading papers and working on on hard research problems and th- reading the papers of like. Turing Award winners, and then like being a step ahead of some of them and being like, oh, wow, they just published this thing. Um, and like that's a problem that we solved like a while ago or something. And, and that was like a, you, you get like glimpses of this happening, right? And like you can think of, of someone like Vitalik as operating entirely in that, in that space where he's just thinking about large scale problems in the five, 10 year time horizon. So a creator of Ethereum. Yeah, Vitalik, uh, Vitalik the creator of Ethereum. Um, and he, he has managed to build for himself a lab similar to, to one you would have at, at a place like, um, like Bell Labs or something, uh, but in a very different landscape, right? And I think this is, you, you probably won't see that, the creation of a, of a Bell Labs like the one before. It's possible that someone like Google and so on creates it, but I think what we'll have instead is, is a much more distributed version of it where you will have smaller labs that are able to like get large-scale 10-year time horizon funding. And what I'm particularly interested in, and you know, I'll kind of like throw this out there now because it's, a, it's an interesting problem that I think is worth solving and if we solve this, like it can have massive implications for the world. Like here, here's a, you know, if you're, you're a researcher and you and you want to think about like, not just um, starting businesses and starting companies and so on, but like really think deeply about what what kind of problems if we solve them today would have would create like enormous value for humanity world, worldwide. There's a very specific problem in in and this is like an economics uh, problem. It's the and it's also an AI problem. Um, it's the credit assignment problem which is that if you have a set of agents that are participating in a set of endeavors and those endeavors either create or destroy value, how do you correctly propagate reward back to the agents? Meaning, you know, if you have a number of people working on a startup and you create a whole bunch of value in a, in a startup and that ends up, you know, ca- you capture some of that as a reward, how do you propagate the reward back? Um, effectively, this is equity. Equity right now is like the way that this is done in a larger scale in the market is, is seen as investments and capital and, you know, the, the, the capital formation pers- uh, world and so on. Um, but then when you look at it in a different world, in science, for example, um, you have labs that uh, are effectively accruing 
uh, academic credit and 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 you know social kind of academic social credit and credibility that they're going to be able to use to then get further grants to fund the rest of the thing, uh, and like that's a different answer. And when you think about open source, um, we don't have today an easy way of correctly figuring out and computing what is the credit assignment on something like the Linux kernel, right? I mean, Linux has done an enormous amount of work and and you know created a huge fraction of the value from the Linux kernel, but so have a ton of other people that have been you know, slogging and wading through major, major issues. And the majority of those people that are building this huge foundational thing that is now on like, you know, a huge fraction of the computers on the planet did not see any kind of, kind of reward attributed to them on the scale of the companies that came after that user technology and captured value, right? So you can see something like Android as capturing massive amounts of value that went into the Android business and Google and and you know all of those the, that, those groups that completely rode on the on the value created by the Linux Linux um, kernel group, and you can think think about this across every single business. Every single business that runs computers in a large scale like has been <laughs> has gotten value out of the Linux kernel group, and, and I mean how can we just like propagate reward back so that you know all of those people now no longer have to like worry about like other day jobs and can like really just focus on this thing um, but can you do this in a in a in a big scale across all possible um, you know projects right so we are super interested in solving this problem because we think if we solve this problem you know even if we have like a a bit of a good answer to this problem um, then we can fundamentally change how uh, open source gets built in that it would be great if people that are working to work on projects on open source can just do that without having to have a day job that, that they don't like or whatever. There's a lot of people I know that, that operate in that landscape where they have some job that's kind of interesting and they do it because, you know, they have options. Like they could, you know, they're not going to work on something they completely don't like or whatever. And although there are a lot of people like, um, that are in that position. But at the same time, it's not what they, what they love the most and it's what will pay their bills. And at the same time, they're creating a ton of value by working on a whole bunch of interesting open source projects. But there's no easy way for them to get rewarded by the value that's captured many, many layers deep after. So my, I claim, and this is a complete you know, guess, um, and I could be totally wrong about this, but I claim that if we solve that problem in a way that we have a function, like I could run a function over all of the people on GitHub that have contributed to all of the projects uh, that Protocol Labs runs, and all of the projects that Protocol Labs projects use. So, like, we're talking about not only the community that's working on one project, but also the commu- the other communities your project depends on, right? Like, we depend on things like the Linux kernel. And so, can we figure out a way to correctly and accurately propagate reward back in a way that's fair and that correctly, you know, gauges a whole bunch of these hard questions about opportunity cost okay, and externalities Okay, I'll take so a swing on. at that. Have you seen the papers about how to fairly slice a cake? Um, yes. So essentially, um, you slice and I pick. <laughs> There's ways that they, they found a way to extrapolate that into multiple parties. And so th- this isn't the actual solution, but I wonder if you could use where other contributors all are slicing other people's cake. <laughs> so they, like, they decide proof of work. Well, it was, uh, well, yeah, sort of so, like so that's a good intuition. That's a good intuition. Yeah. But then are you sure that's not gameable? Because then I could just get a, a collection of 10 people that you know, we all like each other and we all give each other huge, country, huge slices. But that's how companies work oftentimes, right? Like there's someone who doesn't always push the best code, but they might be a huge morale boost. Yeah. And so like them being on the project is actually super and so, valuable. And so to, yeah. Wait, so to touch that though, so what, you're looking for something that 
doesn't use human intervention whatsoever? It's a purely algorithmic no, answer? I think, I think it's fine to feed in human intervention along the way. You know, there's interesting research done on large companies and governments where you have all these, you know, peer reviews, uh, you know, kind of like, and manager reviews and, and uh, all this kind of, you know, 360 review kind of perspective. And out of that, you can get good signal. Right, like otherwise, if we didn't weren't getting good signal, then there's no hope for <laughs> for any kind of company that's, that's large, right? And so, surely something's working. Um, and, and there's good research that shows like you can definitely get interesting human feedback on the, in the loop, and you can take that as a signal. But the hard thing is, I claim that what we need to do is is allow the collection of that feedback to have humans in the loop, but do so in such a way that it is extremely difficult to game because you know again, that's if you if you give people. People will quickly learn that they can just like, give each other really high ratings, and that will have translate into really big boosts and promotions and so on, uh, or like you know greater rewards. So you have to get something that doesn't like it's not easy to game. But then further, if you take people out of the equation in the choosing part at the very top, like all of those feedback, all of that feedback always propagates all the way to the top, and it's ultimately people making decisions, at, at, you know, of kind of like compensation and all this kind of stuff. And this is in companies, but. In, in science, it's like grant funding, right? Like the people that actually choose who to give grants to and, and what research to fund. Um, or in open source, it's like, hey, a company decided to invest deeply into this project because they thought it was like super valuable and like they allocated engineers to just work on it. But like they're not directly just giving money to everyone in that project. Um, if, if we just take humans out of the loop in that decision process and, and put an algorithm that people can have confidence over that this is, is going to be a correct and fair um, you know, a portion like a correct and fair um, allocation of the reward, at least better than most humans would do at first pass approximation. If we can do that, turn that into an algorithm, then I claim we could fix a whole bunch of cap tables around the world that like really screwed up, <laughs> and you can fix a whole bunch of the way that grant funding is done in 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 science um, because you're not going to rely as hard on on prior success and you're not going to. Re- or rather, you're not going to rely as hard on like social signals, and you're going to rely more on like deep achievement. Um, and I claim you can do something fundamentally new, which is you can start um, propagating rewards through open source to the point where a lot of people can gravitate to the things that they think are extremely valuable, and they you know they invest their time instead of investing their money into things that they think are cool and interesting and valuable. And if those turn out to be mm-hmm. valuable in such a way that reward ends up getting propagated back to them, they can then turn that contribution into eating, right? Like, there's this... We're headed for, like, a very big economic problem, and we're already kind of in the middle of it, but we're going to have bigger problems, that as automation comes in and, and AI comes in and all this kind of stuff... It's going to challenge our funda- our basic notions of 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 worth in 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 value in you know economic terms, right? Like we live in a world that's centered very very rigidly around the perspective of hey, you have you get a job and you work and you contribute value to an endeavor and you get back some pay and you turn that pay into food. And so if you want food and shelter and survival and if you want nice things and if you want to like be able to like you know, not only survive and, and, and have good things and so on, but like you want to leave, you know, be able to afford school for your kids or healthcare and so on, you have to have a job. And this job is mediated by, you know, kind of like a whole bunch of external forces. And it prevents a ton of people from allocating their work to what they think is actually most fundamentally valuable. 
And I claim it doesn't do as good of a job as it should in correctly rewarding major contributions. We see people with Nobel Prizes and Turing Prizes that have made massive contributions to the world and have, you know, not net worths similar to groups that, like, ended up doing, like, terrible things for the world yeah. and, and managed to get away with it, right? And so it, the claim here is one that this, on the, on the small scale, could improve dramatically something like open source and, and potentially, like, companies and how you allocate compensation there. But in a big scale, a really good answer to this problem could be a new economic model. Like, it could be, like, the, a new version of capitalism, or it could be something else that's not called capitalism. It could be something around... Like just like correct, I don't know. Like it's a whole new world, right? So I think it's that's super interesting, and we've had a lot of discussions internally around basic income. I think yeah. where I get hung up on this is that let's pretend that we did have the algorithm. Let's pretend someone did the research and they found a fair way to allocate worth. Would anyone accept it? <laughs> like essentially, the tricky part is not the technical challenge. It's getting people to ever believe a computer is fair or ever like what if the algorithm said, actually, you're not worth very much. You know how like it's very hard to imagine people saying, you know what? You're right. This this algorithm is is inherently fair. But I think it actually like meshes quite well with the American mindset, which is like I can do work and create more value than the next person rather than relying on some social system around you. You're like, if I'll just do it. And like right now we rely on the market to decide what's valuable. But who knows? Like, yeah, 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 ideally. So, So that's where I think I mean. I think for this to work correctly, you have to have markets involved and you have to have this kind of algorithm either working in a market. You can turn an algorithm into a market, right? And then ideally you wouldn't have one one computer that like decides what you're worth, right? But rather you have an entire like large scale system and relative worth is being ascribed by other groups, right? Like you have a lot of cases where one group thinks something is really valuable and another group doesn't think so and that's fine. Um, It's just like they have they themselves are accruing value and worth in, in whatever ways, and they can propagate the reward however they want. Um, you know, similar to like, you know, companies going in opposite directions or whatever. Um, and yes, it's going to call into question a bunch of hard things of, as, as like, you know, here's like your, what your contribution is really worth. But my claim is right now we, we have a much worse... This is kind of... I, I, I kind of describe this as similar to the self-driving car problem. People think, how could a computer ever possibly drive better than me like, computers are stupid, right? And I am a great driver, and I can go fast, and I can re- react really well, and so on. I would never trust a computer. And yet, you know, it's, it's taken a long time. It's taken over 50 years since, like, the first <laughs> uh, plans to do this uh, appeared. But now we have computers that drive better than humans. And pretty soon, they're going to start getting deployed, and we're going to start writing in them, and so on. And people will see that this is, <laughs> this is going to save a ton of lives compar- comparatively. And so my claim is is you can create something that's fair, and you can create something that that is also provably fair. So one of the things here about algorithms is you can have a computation that's provable that actually runs over the whole thing and can produce a cryptographically verifiable proof that it was done correctly and like that it was correctly assigning the right thing. And it could give you a trace of like all of the violation. And like here here's the argument as to why this determination was made. And and I think like that would be a much better place to be than where we are now, where it's extremely fuzzy. It's extremely like based on a whole bunch of factors that I think, you know, our bias is all over the place, and, and allow, you know, a few people that understand all of those biases and perspectives to then game them and then put themselves in positions of greater and greater, greater power, which is, by the way, I think one of the big reasons why capital um, accumulates. There's a whole bunch of reasons why capital accumulates and centralizes, but I think one of them is the fact that, like, once you understand enough about how all of this stuff works, you can then 
position yourself and maneuver yourself to expose yourself to things that that generate a lot of capital and, and wealth that don't necessarily generate or create a lot of value, right? Like there's a very big difference between capital and value that is not correctly, un, like the value of a dollar today does not equate to like just raw fundamental value, right? And so we, we, we it's an approximation and we think that it's a, it's a good enough approximation to continue using it. But in a lot of ways, you can see things that are worth massive amounts of money you know, there's tons of companies that like get a lot of value by like dumping a bunch of crap into the ocean and, and like wrecking. You know, there's a whole bunch of externalities that we cannot properly calculate and 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 account in those in those situations. Um, and ultimately, there's at least in in most countries in here in 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 the world, you have groups of people that are making those decisions at the very top and deciding what are the outcomes of major bad actors, like actors that have made serious mistakes like you know the 2008 crisis like major mistakes and they're saying like well yeah all these were major mistakes all of these things should fail but if they fail we're going to be in deeper trouble so let's just bail them out and continue as if nothing had happened um to some degree not quite but to some degree and a ton of these people walked away scot-free right like and got away with in in some cases actually making money through the financial crisis In, in you know people that were directly responsible for the problem ended up with returns. And like this is like screwed up, right? And I think like this is something extremely far away from a correct and fair distribution of value. And 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 you know, and so I think, you know, that's I think an open problem of the kind of like pre-companies or pre-capitalism or 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 this kind of thing. Like if we find a good solution to this problem, it could in decades translate into a rewiring of of how we how we think and, and how we how we value things and how we allocate resources and, and all that. In the small scale, I think that we were beginning to see a few experiments in this direction. I see things like what Ethereum was able to do with its own resources uh, and being able to like just give a lot of people Ether that then accrued in value and so on and do things kind of like through RFPs and try to like get some vague measure of like what this might be worth uh, and giving people a share of the return. Not, not dollars or euros, right? But like instead Ether, which means it's a share of the potential future value generated by the network, is, start, is, is, is a step in the right direction. You know, it's like a, we're going to gradient descent our way into this, right? But like, you know, it's a step in the right direction. And I think we, we are gearing up to try some things like this. So do you think the way, like you've looked at the relative distribution of wealth from crypto, that that is a good model? Because isn't it really concentrated in a small number of people that happen to have the resources to be early? Um, so I, I don't think that... I think a few people ended up getting a lot of value. Um, also, with a lot of these projects, a few people ended up creating massive amounts of that value. Um, I think, like, you know... For example, I think people should not at all undervalue Vitalik's contribution. I think he's yeah. contributed an enormous amount to, to the entire space. And, and, and you, I use that as an example. Um, there's probably a whole bunch of misallocations all over the place, like you can probably find. Because, um, again, I'm just thinking through what you were saying about... But, but I also know a lot of people, like in, in the dozens to hundreds, that made a lot of money through crypto who slogged through the creation of value in this new network, who understood the value of this thing, were willing to take the risk and work on it and, you know, really spent, you know, the better part of a year and a half, like, working on something that was completely, you know, super high risk, unclear that it was going to work out and so on. And they've seen returns that are higher than most startups, like higher than, than what their distribution would have been in, in, right. in a so lot like of Right. So like a 400x return, right? Well, right. If you bought Ethereum at the crowd. It depends so. when you got in. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, think conversely, think of it like you just happen to, you know, luck into being one of the first 10 employees at a giant company, but the 25th person is the person who actually created the value and their allocation is much less than yours. Yeah. Like that model is not figured out yet. Yeah. I, I am, I am deeply uh, like frustrated by that problem. I, I, I w- desperately want to fix that problem. And I think that if we fix that problem, then we can have massively open ended creation of value. Um, in, in, a, in a, it's a strong claim, but like, I think like fixing that issue yeah, makes would make a ton of tech companies work extremely well and, and be able to generate tons of value and not only tech companies, but tech projects in general. Like, I, I'm sorry, like the company is, is fading away and, or not fading away, but rather a new thing is, has come in, which is the network or a market that, that is not a company, but it functions kind of like a company. And so you can think of Ethereum not as a company, but rather as a, as this network that, that has some shared asset that is, that is incenting people to work on it and so on. And then there's like some loose organization, but not, not really centralized or it's not really central planning. And like, that's a whole bunch of things that are, that are interesting and are pushing in the right direction. And, and I would say that the distribution of wealth is probably flatter. I, th- I, I don't know this to be 100% the case, and I need to look at the, uh, the raw data, but... I think the raw data for Bitcoin a few years ago wasn't pretty. Last time I looked at it, for what it's worth. Yeah, like, for Bitcoin. What about Ethereum? Yeah, I, don't, I don't actually know. I haven't seen any breakdowns on that. But I remember I was actually very curious about this. About, yeah. Um, not like the, not what Satoshi has, but like the, the, the other people, the head... The people that bought in early, basically. Like, totally. Like, what is their relative distribution and yeah, all you know, that other good stuff? I'm kind of bothered by that. I'm kind of bothered by the fact that in crypto, right now, you're seeing the normal issues with capital flood in, which is that uh, if you're a speculator that has a lot of capital, you can afford to get much greater rewards than the people that actually build the thing. And, and that, to me, is, again, another frustrating thing that I kind so of this is why I, This is why I ask, because it's like, here we are, we're creating all this new stuff. But, but I think yeah, it's yeah. incremental, right? Like, I think it's, it's a step in the right direction and a, and a big step, dare I say, a quantum leap uh, in the right direction. And I think it's um, what's interesting to me is rather what has not what has been done so far, but the tools we now have, meaning that um, and this is starting to get into the experiments we're going to run next year and, and, and the year after that. But we're looking at the possibilities of issuing a token to a whole bunch of contributors that have created a whole bunch of value to you know, a ton of projects that we think are, are valuable. Mostly, look, right now, we're going to do them with our own projects. But you know, if this works well, we could do the, you know, we can do that in an even deeper way across projects that, that contribute value to us. Um, and we're going to issue this token, and then we either are going to do things like issue dividends or uh, buy it back and create a way for us to directly share a fraction of the value that Proc Labs creates with the people that helped create that value. And this is a huge experiment, right? It could go completely wrong. It could change the way that people, why people contribute. It could like bring in a lot of people that are not deeply interested in the right things and are kind of just looking for money. And like that's what I worry about. I don't want to do anything that like would would cause that because I think open source is like is an amazing place where people are motivated to to work for the project because of what you believe in and like that's m- super important like yeah like I, I would hate it if whatever uh kind of experiment in this direction kills the fact that the linux kernel right. is built by a bunch of people that really care deeply about the problems and are fixing them um and, and so, like, it has to be done carefully, but I think we can start running some experiments. Right, because you uh, don't want every project to end up at some weird local maximum where, like, oh, okay, companies are using this now. Value will accrue to me. I can jump to the next thing. Exactly. 
Um, so is this being wrapped into CoinList yet, like these ideas? Uh, so, I mean, they are ideas we are thinking about. Uh, these are not being wrapped into, into CoinList or other things just yet. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to carefully consider here. I mean, the thing about incentive engineering is that it's hard. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is why this problem is, is an open problem. And, you know, you know if, if you're listening to this and, you, and you're a researcher and you care about this, like, get in touch because uh, I'm probably going to start a small, like, research group to, to, to solve this problem. But I, I don't expect a, a successful thing in, in years. Like, I think this is a long-term thing. I think this is, this is like, a, the kind of research project that Protocol Apps could fund that is one of those long-term innovation things. And we actually, I don't think we need that many people. I think, like, probably the right 10 people can solve this problem. Um, maybe even less. Maybe it's like a singular person that like actually figures it out. With as has happened in a ton of other cases in, in history, um, but I think we can start at the very least collecting some data uh, to to assist the that the theory and that data that, that might come with some of these experiments. And we are thinking about this, these experiments. I mostly want to reward right now. I mostly want to reward um, a lot of the people that were very early to the IPFS project that saw the value created um, and said, wow, this is an awesome project and we want to um, make this you know, a reality and, and so on. And you know, we've been slogging through a ton of hard work for the last three years. Like right now, I guess GoIPFS turned three years old yet, like two days ago. Um, the, the protocol itself is a little bit older, but um, that was like you know, the code base. And there's a ton of people that came in and, and helped out tremendously. Some of them who you know, didn't make sense for us to hire into Protocol Labs. Some of the people, like, for whatever reason, um, some of those cases are like academics. Some of them are like grad students and professors who talked with me and, and walked me through certain important things that ended up contributing value to the, to the project. And, and I want to find a way to then divert some of the return that we'll see from, from Filecoin. Because what we're going to do is like we're going to create this whole Filecoin network, and that will generate a ton of value. And, and a whole bunch of people, like the miners in the Filecoin network, are going to get a ton, of, a ton of value. And so will Protocol Labs. And then can we divert some of that value that Protocol Labs gets back and, and pump it straight into all of the open source work that we do mm-hmm. um, in a way that doesn't like hurt, hurt it? Right? Like, I, I'm very, very wary and careful about anywhere where money and open source gets mixed um, because it can get like really screwed up um, and it can kind of like, kill projects. But I think that things like Ethereum are examples of things being done better and right in some direction and at least in a, in a, in a successful one, right? Like you can look at the Ethereum community and it's filled with researchers, like, like people who are thinking deep and hard about theory and the correct application of like, you know, think, people that are thinking about consensus and consensus problems, like this, the kind of stuff that only Turing Award winners normally think about, right? Like, or, or you know, grad students that are trying to like upend like 20 years of research or whatever. Um, and, and like, there's people in the Ethereum community actually doing this work, and it's amazing. Like, it, like it's it should not be undervalued. Like, that's I've. It's extremely difficult to find communities where not only is that valued by everyone around, but it's also greatly rewarded, right? And like that's. That's, I think, is an example in the right direction, and I think one that we can we can build on and create more of. And if this gets to be, you know, I think if Ethereum and Falcon and these networks get to be uh, massive and um, end up like being at the same degree and scale as a whole bunch of the other other ways of doing things, like the the centralized tech companies and so on, then we can then start looking at 
rewarding people across company lines. Right? So like, here's an interesting problem, right? Like there's a ton of people that work at Google and a ton of people that work at a bunch of other places that could contribute massively to these projects by just spending a few hours maybe on a week or later on. And they're the right people that have the right insights, that have the right perspective. And right now they can't work for another company because it's like a conflict of interest, but they can contribute to open source. Now, like in many cases they do, and then reward can be backpropagated in a, in a weird way, right? And so like it's it's a it's like people contribute, and then later if value gets created, then there's like this backprop that happens out of like distributions of the token. Um, and, and so I don't know how that works with like, or how that's going to turn out and work with IP and so on. But I think it's it's going to come in kind of like a wrecking ball in that a ton of a ton of I know a lot of researchers that um, in crypto and game theory and so on that understood the crypto world and then either got a bunch of Bitcoin or, or Ether and now can just chill out and be grad students or, or professors in some cases mm-hmm. and um, just do the research that they really care about and they're now personally wealthy. And it's awesome. Like, that's fantastic. Like, that, that, that is a great example of a correct application of the rewards problem. Like, right there. Like, the people that generated massive amount of value by slogging through really hard theory problems for years and came up with the right solution and so on are now able to, like, correctly make contributions. In some cases, like, short time span contributions. Because, um, again, knowledge work is really hard to measure in hours. You can't, you can't measure knowledge work in hours. Somebody's investment over a decade can put them into the right perspective to make the right contribution at the right time that creates something like Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever. And you know, how do you correctly re- reward that? And I think like something like like these cryptocurrency networks can reward that better than the normal notion of of like yearly pay in a salaried thing that was built for the industrial revolution where like you needed manufacturing and you needed to just bill for hours because like you had to spend a whole bunch of hours working on something, right? Um, and so I think like this is an interesting thing, and I think we're, we're starting to see this 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 develop, and you know we're we're like thinking about things like that of like how do we build protocol apps as an organization that can do deep research a bunch of different directions with a bunch of collaborators around the planet and a bunch of different organizations, and how can we structure things in such a way that if those things we collaborate on succeed greatly, everyone gets rewarded. Everyone who contributed to that thing gets rewarded fairly. Like that's you know super hard to to try and solve. But, you know, we want to we do that. Um, so I think this is a good place to pause. So you got to roll. We do have some questions from Twitter. So that would be awesome to address. Uh, cool. All right. Uh, let's, we can just pause. Thank you. Thanks. Let's go into the Twitter questions. So we got a handful. Uh, you can answer them uh, however you'd like. So from Startup Sanitana, uh, how does uh, Filecoin's data storage network, um, how is it natural slash unnatural disaster proof? Ah, great question. So it really depends on on the scale of the natural disaster. I mean, like if a comet hit the planet, that's a little hard. Um, but so there's a few pieces here. One of them is IPFS is by nature um, what I like to call like fully distributed or logically decentralized, as, as Vitalik calls it, um, which is that the, the nodes in the IPFS network can continue talking to each other even if the rest of the network disappears. And so Filecoin, um, because it uses IPFS and so on, Filecoin nodes will be able to talk to each other even if they can't talk to the rest of the network. Now, there's a question there of like, how can you clear transactions? And like, that's, that's the thing that we have active and deep research on. Um, we want to have a, a network that can shard and where you can have a subset of the Filecoin network operating even if it can't talk to the rest of the network and clear transactions. That's a hard problem. Um, the first iteration of, of the Filecoin network that goes live won't quite do that. 
Um, but the way it'll be, and so there's like, you know, if you get isolated from the rest of the network, you, you may not be able to clear transactions, but you might be able to distribute files uh, for at least for some period of time. Um, and then if you are in the rest of the network, but then like half of it disappears because of some huge natural disaster, I guess slightly less than half, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and divided by two, uh, we can survive those failures because when people add data to the network, it gets split up into pieces, gets erasure coded. So uh, you can get like this really nice replication factor where um, without adding too much overhead, uh, where like the replication factor does not add massive overhead, um, you can get a... a, a a huge resilience factor where you know you can you can survive huge numbers of failures and your data can still be there. Um, the exact numbers on this, like we'll we'll come up with and, and publish um, the exact details on this down the road. Um, but but it's going to be a tunable parameter, so you can like crank up the the level of erasure codedness effectively that you want. And on so the you user have like side, a, on, on, on the user side, side yeah. Okay. So if you have a megabyte of data that's really important, you just like crank up the replication factor and like the the, the you know the erasure, the Splitting into pieces and erasure coding, uh, so that you have like hundreds of, of these, and like now you and, and they go all go out to a whole bunch of different miners, um, and so now you are in a much better position than than if you know only three people were like were storing this. So that's that's, that's I guess one one set of answers. Okay. Uh, next question, Robert Andrew Smith. Uh, when will Filecoin sale details be released? Yeah. And then uh, following up on that, uh, yeah. yeah. Filecoin sale details will be released very soon. Unfortunately, we can't give you give you an exact date, but it's it's weeks away. It's like you know, um, it, it's some sometime in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, very soon, um, we are working as hard as we can right now to get it out of the door. Uh, there's the the reason for for that that we can't announce an exact date yet is that we there are a few like things, uh, especially on 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 around uh there's a couple of processes that are running right now that we have a kind of like a date that they're going to finish and that's ideally a week or two weeks out um but it's, there's a little bit of unpredictability yet there so i want to be able to do the sale as soon as possible but you know subject to that so really like weeks but expect news very very soon <laughs> uh then he also asked uh, another question what other plans do you have with coinlist uh so coinlist uh which is um, another project that that Protocol Lab started. Uh, this is a and this is in, in partnership with AngelList and and this is a token sale platform that kind of will allow token project creators to launch their networks and, and run token sales without having to slog through the hundreds of hours that we spent both building this kind of platform and going through legal and so on. And uh, Coinless works with the the SAFT. Um, it, Coinless will have like, we work with a lot of sales that are that are both include the SAFT and others that don't. Um, but basically, like there's this important piece that if you want to run a token sale in the U.S., you want to uh, there's there's like a question there around whether or not you're selling a security. And if you if you think you're indeed selling a security, then you should uh, limit it limit the sale of that security to accredited investors, um, at least in the U.S. And uh, when you when you do that, then um, Coinless makes that easy, uh, and you can accredit uh, in the same way that you would accredit uh, through through AngelList. Um, but you know that, that's not even like the main selling point of Coinless. The main selling point of Coinless will be uh, decreasing the amount of work for token sale creators and, and creating a network that it, that focuses on finding really high signal projects. Right. So there's a ton of projects in the space, and um, the 
one of the things that we, that we care a lot about is how do you how do you find really really good projects and and help those gain attention and kind of like stick out and and how can you help them prove it right like it's one thing for that project to kind of like convey a lot of things but it, it becomes really useful when you have third parties that are independent think about those projects and 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 kind of um have yeah we're very interested in solving that signal problem of how do you how do you correctly um figure out what are the really solid and outstanding projects and so we think that's going to be an important value proposition from coinless of like really finding the best things around that that was actually a question i wanted to ask before but didn't um do you have any rules of thumb that you can give to people around like filtering out all the noise right now yeah so we've gotten you know a ton of applications and and um it's a lot of interesting stuff uh is is coming down the pipeline some like really really cool stuff um we've also seen you know some some scams like we we've actually like seen some applications that are like outright outright scams uh i think you know we don't want to be in a position of ga- to of being like effectively gatekeepers that prevent really good ideas from from if we don't understand something we shouldn't be um kind of like gatekeepers, gatekeepers that we have to convince but on the flip side we also don't want things that we can tell are outright scams on the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we want at least, you know, some layer of, like, barriers there to make sure that the projects that do get listed on CoinList um, pass a certain bar of quality. Now, there could be some very cleverly engineered and, and designed um, scams or whatever that, that fool even us or whatever. So, you know, anyone investing through, this, through, through any kind of investment platform is ultimately, you know, um, responsible for doing their own diligence, but at the very least, we're going to, I think, cut out a huge fraction of, of a lot of those things. Um, and we're, we're working on ways of helping project creators highlight their technical strengths and their, you know, the, the, create, the, the value they propose in ways that, like, let them shine against other projects that could probably spend a whole bunch of money on marketing and so on, but actually really have no important technical depth underneath the hood. And so that's a whole bunch of interesting problems that we want to we want to help solve with Coinless. Okay, and obviously accredited investors is a yeah. major part of that. Yeah, yeah, and I think uh, accredited investors kind of weighing in on things is an important part. Although I would say, you know, I think this is an important piece, or or we're going to have to message this better in that um, not all sales that will go through Coinless are going to be only for accredited investors. There will be some sales that are like are not securities, and then you know people can 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 buy normally. Um, and there, and it also will be the case that some sales um, might want to do a reg um, a reg D five hundred six C offering in the U S. So that's accredited investors only, but are able to do a reg S funding to the rest of the world and do and figure out um, things outside. Um, so this is kind of similar to what Blockchain Capital did. So we're looking deeply into that, and we want to we want to we want to. Uh, we we expect that a number of tokens will be able to do that. I can't definitively say that. They will certainly be able to do that because there's some, still some legal questions there that we need to solve. And additionally, we want to um, involve crowdfunding as well. We think that it's very important that people in the U.S. that are not accredited uh, but that understand the tech really well and are able to make investments like that, um, it's just the, the, the burden on, on doing crowdfunding is quite quite large and there's um you know there's questions of like how does that combine with cryptocurrency and so on that you know we are doing the legal review on and and legal work on at the moment um and we hope to have news on that relatively soon um but we that's stuff that we are actively working on and trying to uh enable because we don't want the accredited investor limit to 
you know, prevent people that truly understand the tech and perhaps are much better investors than accredited investors. Meaning like, you know, having a million dollars does not mean that you know what cryptocurrency network is going to be better or what cryptocurrency network actually will work. Um, there were a lot of people investing in things that had a lot of money and could lose it um, on things that didn't work out. And a lot of people that understood that something like Ethereum was going to be really valuable. Um, so we want to we want to enable people to to come into these things like this. And so we're looking at crowdfunding. We're also looking at other ways of potentially involving people that, you know, for whatever reason, they can't directly invest in the presale. Um, but maybe perhaps they can, they can come in when the token goes live in an actual token sale, um, broader in, in like live exchanges, at a discount, at some sort of discount that, that puts them into a, in, in a good position. But it's like sometimes that can be done by, instead of it coming in and investing early, rather helping the network, right? So... One of the big parts of get, gathering investors through a network like this is, is gathering people that are really well aligned with the network and want to help it grow. And like, that's, that's what investors should be. Um, investors should not be just like random speculators that like, are just trying to make a quick buck. We are interested in helping create large-scale communities that have like, really strong buy-in from people that want to you know, help create them and, and, and you know, see, see the promise. Um, and so one of the things that we're thinking about is like, okay, great. Like, there's a lot of people that you know, maybe are unfortunately limited by, by this, the, 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 the laws around accreditation. However, they probably have the ability to get involved, actually involved directly with the projects and contributing in another way that would then, you know, in a sense, like they, they could get rewarded by either getting, getting paid for their work in, in tokens um, or... Um, or potentially being able to buy the token when it comes out at a discount that they, they have, that other people don't have. That's a good point. I hadn't heard about that. Um, okay. Jesse Jump Cut asks, I'm having trouble understanding the market need for Filecoin. Is storage a burning pain that consumers face? Oh, definitely. I mean, all you have to think about is how much data is being generated by computers. Right. So so this is not just for for consumers, although consumers do have a lot of data, like think about, you know, I have a phone here and like how much I don't even know how much storage this has, but it has a lot. And I use a lot of a lot of data by having applications that, you know, download video or whatever or or, um, you know, when you take pictures and video and so on. Um, People's like the right way to answer this question is look at the growth in market of cloud storage and it's it's growing tremendously. and so cloud storage in general um, is the idea of reselling storage for other, other groups. And consumers, massive businesses and so on, are seeing exponential growth in data. So data and the, the need to store it is about one of the few things you can look at and say, this is growing exponentially and shows no sign of stopping uh, anytime soon. And so you kind of have to extrapolate, like, are humans going to continue, like, proliferating and building more cities? And repli- I like, think I would reframe. I would, re- I, uh, yes. <laughs> and, like, we're going to need a lot better, more and more data. Yeah. yeah. But I think I would reframe the question, actually. Like, what is differentiated with Filecoin to, like, you know, Dropbox? Uh, like, why do it. I care about using it? Totally. And, I mean, Filecoin is not to be seen as a, a Dropbox replacement, although there will be Dropbox-like things that build on, build on top of Filecoin. I think you, you should think about Filecoin as... Um, as replacing cloud storage. So it's something that Dropbox would use. So, so a company like Dropbox should, would think about like, oh, do we run our own managed infrastructure or do we use AWS or do we use uh, something like Filecoin? And so that's where the, the, the economic improvement comes of like, it, what, what is the relative advantage of something like Filecoin to other cloud storage offerings in a sense? And uh, the, the thing here is 
there's a certain set of features that Falcon will bring that other things don't have. So being able to have decentralized data means that you know if Amazon doesn't like you anymore, they can't like just in one turn shut you off in a way that like suddenly you have to like move to another provider and you have to deal with like changing all of your addresses and everything. Like right now with Falcon, it would be work continue. It would continue to work. Um, and two, it's about um, so you know there's a whole bunch of features like that and erasure coding and so on that we could go into. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of other things around the market dynamics in general. In that Falcon is not. You shouldn't think of Falcon as like another provider. Think about Falcon as a market. So, so Falcon is a market that layers across all providers and enables a whole bunch of providers that right now are not selling data in the world to come in and sell it. So um, think about how much storage there is on the planet that right now is not being sold to other people. And that if that storage came online, it would drive the price down. Um, in, in the storage that right now is depreciating. A lot of people have invested huge amounts of money in having massive arrays of hard drives that are not giving them any money, and you know they're losing money on those investments. And so think about creating a market that enables anybody to then sell that storage to the rest of the world and make a you know for a, for a profit. And uh, you know there's a whole bunch of questions there. They're like, wow, can you really achieve uh, you know? Um, Economies of scale with a network like this. Can you really, you know, get a better unit economics of like, can you can you provide bytes cheaper than something like um, Google Cloud or Amazon or whatever? Um, and our bet there is that yes, that there's a whole bunch of places and cases where certain individuals or groups in the world have access to either really cheap storage or storage that's positioned well in the network that is kind of like, you know, somewhere between the backbone and like a whole bunch of consumers. And if they become um, Falcon miners and storage nodes, they could actually be in a better optimization point than even something like Amazon. And so that's uh, you know that's a, that's a bet, and we think it's 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 right. Uh, and like that on its own is like a, an interesting interesting um, reason for people to opt to choose something like Falcon. And uh, and so yeah, think about it kind of like an algorithmic market. Say instead of this having a very inefficient market where you have to when you want to hire storage, you have to go and like research companies and you have to look at them and you have to like sign up with them and create you know you have to be a legal entity you have to be either a person or a company and or whatever like you have to like have a credit card and you have to like buy you know you enter into some like legal agreement and then you enter into a legal agreement then you can send them bytes it's like this huge onerous process and when you compare them you like see their websites and so on to something closer to like an actual like spot market where any file, any storage that's available worldwide that, that has shown to have good metrics and, and you know, shown to be online for a long period of time, shown to be good or whatever, can then be sold to you at the cheapest possible price that you, can, that you want um, immediately, algorithmically. Right? Like, and so this is about uh, changing the market completely. Uh, it's going from a world of like centralized storage providers to a world where like there's a huge market and it's mediated programmatically. Mm, okay, so adding on to that, uh, same person, Jesse Jumpcut, had another question. Uh, how does Filecoin plan to compete with companies like Sia and Storage? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, who have been out for a while. So I think, you know, there's totally, and, and you know, there's a few things there. One is um, the, the reason Filecoin is not out yet is because we spent a ton of our time building the IPFS project and getting that out of the door. And there's a ton of people that are using the IPFS project that are, are you know want desperately want Falcon to be out and like we know that already we have a ton of users lined up that right now are not going to those those other competitors they're actually like either in s3 or other places and you know would jump directly to us um 
And then the deeper question and, and way to look at it is just think about the technology. And uh, we're about to release like the, the second version of our, of, our, of our protocol. And it's just a fundamentally different thing. Like it operates in a different way. It offers different guarantees and so on. And we think that those different guarantees are actually have a very significant market need uh, and solve a whole bunch of different market needs than these other networks don't. Um, and so that's like kind of like how we are going to be able to compete. Another thing is, um, and, and, and this is, you know, uh, I don't know how, how it'll play out, but I actually bet a lot of people will be mining on both networks or like all, all, all of the networks. And we'll see how that actually plays out. Um, and then we'll see kind of like right now there's a lot of drivers driving for either Uber or Lyft. And, um, we think that the, the tokens uh, and like the rewards and tokens will, will be a and, and people's expectations on like on like how those will will end up working will kind of drive to my people to mine in one. So like I guess an interesting question right now would be did people switch from storage to yeah. Sia or Sia um, when the Sia coin appreciated a lot? Right, that's a, that's an interesting question that people should look into. Can I cross list storage? Um, so with in some ways you will be able to, in other ways you won't. So, so this actually like is very protocol dependent, and different protocols allow it in different ways. Um, some some of the things you won't be able to cross list. Some of the things you will be able to cross list. Um, and so there will be some kind of like there people will be trying and get try and game uh, it a little bit. Yeah, I mean like I mean people are participating in two different networks. I mean like they're storing data. So because of the proof of replication, when when you have proof of replication backed storage, that that ensures that it is unique to this particular request, and that's a very important. Um, thing from a game theory perspective, like you don't want people, you don't want like networks of civils basically uh, pretending to be storing huge amounts of data when they're only storing like one copy, like and the thing is not replicated. So that's what the proof of replication is there for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some things you won't be able to like cross test, but uh, some things like for fast retrieval and so on, like those those will be cross testable. And uh, but I, I think like answering the question in like a, a deeper way, is, it's like I think. I look at Falcon as something very different than these other networks. Um, it, it's not solving exactly the same problem. Uh, Falcon is solving the problem of like how do you create a market and allow any provider. So there's actually a possibility where Saya and storage make sense as you know route a route content to them because they, they, those networks provide kind of like a like a tiered structure. Okay. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, this one is a little bit in the weeds. So this is uh, user Holy Nakamoto uh, referenced a GitHub issue from a couple years ago. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this one. So is the idea of IPFS rendering DDoS attacks impossible hyperbole? Oh, um, well, it depends on how you... Dis- it's not hyperbole in the whole sense. Um, there are some ways and you can take that question of DDoS prevention and say, oh, well, no, you can't possibly mitigate all, all possible DDoS attacks on something. Um, but the way to think about IPFS is that when you have a piece of content, once you have the piece of content or anybody else around in the network has it, you can retrieve it from them, and it doesn't have to come from the original source. So we've already seen cases where people you know, can DOS a specific location and like, can DOS a URL that, that some resource is at, but if it's a it's a name that, you know, you you know some providers that have that content and you can reach them, mm-hmm. but the DOS attackers can't know who those providers are for a whole bunch of there could be a lot of reasons for this. It could be like they're actually disconnected. You're in a network that they're not connected to, or you have access to a 
like a network where you have the ability to search th through a whole bunch of nodes that are willing to share routing information with you, but are unwilling to open it broadly to the whole world. Uh -huh. This is this is kind of like a this gets, starts getting into private networks, like when people people are building private IPFS networks where they have their own set of content that is not exposed to the rest of the world. And so, for example, you're, you're going to be able to like search through through some network like that, and. Um, like right there alone, like you have like entire barriers where where people like the dossiers like can't even get to the content first of all, or like can't even get get to the machines that are that are serving it. So that solves it. the The other case is, hey, like if there's some really popular piece of content and suddenly gets replicated to tons of people, now the DOS attack gets way harder, right? Like now now you have to DOS thousands of people, and so it's not it's not fundamentally in in that particular case. It's not it's not that it's impossible. It becomes intractable. So it becomes intractable for for a, for a, um, a, even a sophisticated attacker to DOS all possible computers that that have this piece of content. So this will be you know especially with like really you know incendiary things that a lot of people want to replicate. Um, you know think about like WikiLeaks type stuff. Um, a lot of people want to replicate it all over the place, and then very quickly will become very difficult for for an attacker to actually silence all possible machines. Um, and so it is not hyperbole. It is impossible in, in some cases and then intractable in others. Okay, cool. That's a good answer. Um, next question. Eric Tang asks, where do you see as the most immediate industry slash text stack slash use case uh, for being decentralized? So what are the... Basically, a way to reframe that question is where is it valuable to have decentralization? I think he's kind of leaning towards like what is a product or use case for something like something you know built on uh ethereum to be oh. decentralized in that way yeah i mean i think the or, way or maybe it's ipfs it would be a better answer uh, oh i see yeah, um, well so i think decentralization changes the properties of the infrastructure and it shouldn't be a thing that the end user should have to care about in a lot of cases, some users will care about care about it, but I think it, it's not something that they should have to care about. Um, meaning that developers are the ones that should think about whether decentralization matters, and that has to do a lot with the, again, specific use cases and specific applications that you're dealing with. Uh, when I look at things like Slack or GitHub or Google Docs that are consumer applications that people use daily to do their work and talk to their coworkers or loved ones or, you know, things like messengers and so on. Um, and all of that flow of information is passing through a set of centralized agents that can be brought down and frequently are brought down. You know, there's like a lot of cases where GitHub go, does go down or Slack does go down um, or your connection to them gets severed in some way. Like you just can't reach them. Like maybe you're offline or whatever. Um, that is a great example where like, logical centralization sucks where like the fact that you can't reach that origin server like prevents you from using any of the data or working together or whatever and and it gets so bad that you could have a room full of people with laptops open on slack or on a google doc and they can't work together <laughs> because they're supercomputers which again like let's be clear here like these computers are more powerful than like all of the all of the computers on the planet were like you know a few decades ago um their supercomputers that they have in front of them can't figure out that the content that they're an application they want to run is really between them and the ones right next to each other and are piping all of the data flows straight up the up the uplink straight into the data center and then back and that's just 
stupid like and wrong and like we should not live in that world and so i want to live in a world where if you have a computer and you're trying to work with somebody across from you the data can flow from one person to another and you can continue working whether or not some random machine somewhere else in the world is failing um so yeah so to answer the question like literally anything where like interacting between people yeah it's it's an infrastructure thing it's like there's a whole bunch of cases where where um it's like the underlying you you want to think about how the underlying data flows move um and the, answering the question for like the Ethereum case, it's really about um, power. It's like where do you want people to be able to exert power? And like doing a transaction through Ethereum and having a smart contract allows you to cut out trust and power all over the place and have a very clear thing that people agree to that is enforced by a computer, not by courts that are slow and expensive. Mm. And I think with a lot of these things, like you don't necessarily have to make it obvious to the end user that this is what you're doing. It just works. It's better. Um, so Eric asked one more question um, around decentralization. So where and how does decentralization gain advantage over centralized benefits uh, where you think about scale and cost? So, so where, does, where do the decentralization benefits actually provide better unit, unit economics in a way? Um, like where your costs for providing the service are actually better. So I think this is where you want to think about like having as effective of, a, of a, an optimization process as you can get, like providing cheap storage to the world or cheap distribution of content to the world um, is a huge optimization problem, right? Like you're dealing with, you know, billions of computers the, around the planet that are all trying to store or retrieve content and a whole bunch of places where you can store it and move it. And then you are dealing with, um, again, billions of people that are using those computers and that the, some subset of those billions of people could actually work on, on maintaining the network and some, some of them are going to be consumers. And so it turns it into like a super complex uh, optimization problem. And the point is, it is actually quite difficult for a centrally planned organization to correctly find all and, 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 and like use and leverage all possible like you know, local minima in a bunch of places where like this is exactly the right place where you want to store something or distribute it from and so on and get like the best costs. Um, the best cost reduction. And so that's, that's I think, where decentralization has a, a massive advantage over centralized services, where like you, you're literally enabling any person in the world who says, oh, I have a clever idea of how I can get cheap power, cheap connectivity, cheap storage, cheap disks, whatever, and enabling them to bring in and, and create a service, right? And so it's kind of like, I guess a, more, a, a deeper way to look at it is, do you think markets are more efficient or do you think central planning is more efficient? And there's a lot of, you know, looking at this question kind of naively, it's like, well, you know, uh, it, like the, the naive answer is like, well, markets are better and because, you know, central planning is, is bad. And the, the slightly deeper answer is, well, no, if you had like a, you know, massive computer that is able to actually calculate everything correctly, then you could actually solve that. And you could have, um, you know, correct allocation of resources by just with one program. But then the even deeper version of that is, not all agents are similarly incented, which means that one agent might produce an answer that it doesn't is not actually optimal to everyone. It's optimal to that agent, um, and so markets are kind of fundamental in how we operate. And so markets allow individual actors to, you know, leverage optimizations. And so like that's that's a thing. And those optimizations might not be optimizations for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's, I think, where, like, decentralization of power is really important to these networks in, in that, like, decentralization of power and, and choice of how to run the service affects the kind of optimizations that people may want to do and, and, and so on, right? So a great example of this, I know of a lot of Bitcoin mines that have super cheap power, 
and they're able to get super cheap power because they're in a particular country where they're able to get a certain deal or because they know the right people or whatever. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why they suddenly have much better unit economics than a major player would have. And you know they don't have enough power that they could service everyone in the world, but they could you know at least contribute that piece. And if you if you collect a whole bunch of these pieces, you actually can build a large scale service. And so that's the that's the I guess one of the insights. Uh, last question: What other projects should people be paying attention to right now? Oh wow, um, that is a great question. I think, I mean. Oh man, like there's there's a ton of interesting stuff. Like I, I think I'll, I'll like rattle off a few a few names. I think um, there's probably a, probably a lot that people already know about. Um, you know, of course, I think if people don't yet understand how Ethereum works or or and all that, like definitely dive in. It's like the best introduction to to the to the future, I guess, than than Bitcoin ever was or or that kind of stuff. So definitely like dive into all of that world. Um, Definitely look at things like Open Bazaar um, and you know a whole bunch of applications that are being built with with these new kinds of networks. Um, you know things like Zcash uh, and so on that like bring in a new property into the world. Uh, and then start looking at like if we want to think about like new and more earlier things. Um, there's a whole bunch of like interesting developments around these networks. Like there's a lot of people building on Ethereum. There's like Zero X, which is a decentralized exchange. There is um, Life Peer, which is like a peer-to-peer distribution thing um, that, that we'll be be um, interacting with, uh, that that uh, aligns really well with a lot of the IPFS tech and the Ethereum tech. Um, there are things like Tezos, which are like uh, which is a project to build a smart contracts platform that is where the smart contracts are written in OCaml, and you have a lot more certainty about like the the programming language. Uh, Proper, like the properties of the programs, um, ideally would like to get to a point where like everything is provable. Um, that's probably unfeasible, uh, and you know probably a theoretic argument why you can't do that and, and actually have a useful thing. But maybe there's something there where like a a network could have like everything be be provable and still be really useful for a certain class of computation. Um, then uh, Numerai is actually super interesting. So Numerai is a um, a hedge fund run with uh, that kind of decentralizes the the data modeling. Uh, so so the, the the predictive power of the models is decentralized. So like individual um, participants can co- come in and contribute different algorithms to try and and leverage the, the hedge funds data to trade better. Um, and so like that, I think is a, is a very interesting mixing of both competition between the the those um, participants that are coming in, but also collaborate, collaboration in that all of them together are going to win together. Um, Numerai is using a, a token. Um, and so I think those are, you know, a set of projects that are, that are pretty interesting. There's probably like further out things that are, that are going to come out. I think I would, if you're into research, I would highly encourage you follow the proof of stake line of work. Um, we're getting ever and ever closer. And I think we're quite close to something um, that can succeed and work at scale. Um, there's already several provable protocols. Um, so anyway, that's cool. some... Some interesting stuff. This was great. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Thanks for listening. So as always, you can check out the transcript at blog.ycombinator.com. We'll also have the video of the interview up there. And um, please remember to subscribe and rate the show. Okay. See you next time.